This week's episode will contain TFOS 1038 to 1051. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1038. Story number one The Lonely Farmer, written by Chucky Stone. Antonio Gavatelli's shuttle locked onto the station. The microgravity of the asteroid the station was built into was just enough to keep things from floating. He glided through the airlock, towing a large, rounded metallic object behind him. He was greeted by Preston Davis, owner of the station, and much of everything else outbound from Mars. Mr. Gavatelli, it's wonderful to finally meet you in person, he said shaking Antonio's hand warmly. Antonio is fine, Mr. Davies. It's wonderful to be here. Please, I'm Preston to my friends, and I certainly count you amongst them. Leave the pod and let's go below to get a bite to eat. The pod was stowed on a dolly and the two drifted down towards the habitation ring. The interior of the asteroid had two large spinning sections close to a kilometer across. They spun in opposite directions, keeping the station centered. One ring held the engineering and labs, the other the living quarters. They rode an elevator down a few hundred meters, the floor slowly rotating out as they dropped. This isn't critical by any stretch, but I like to have some pressure on my feet. We actually have something of a hospice here. It's much easier to give birth under centrifugal forces. The Belters are more than happy to rent a bed for a month or two while they come to term. Doctors could give you more details, but I am just happy having the costs offset a bit around here by some borders. The elevator stopped, and the pseudo-gravity was very noticeable. Antonio had been in flight for nearly a week, and while it hadn't been long enough for major muscle loss, he still felt it. We keep it around 75 Earth normal. I have plenty of elderly staff that aren't looking for the full workout, he smiled, pouring a pair of drinks at a slight angle. He handed one over, but enough of that, we're here to celebrate your work, and it was even under cost and ahead of schedule. Well, you were quite generous with both money and time, Antonio offered, drinking the champagne. He noticed happily that their bubbles were floating up, instead of congealing at the edges. So, uh, the emails tell me that production is going to begin at 1,000 units a month, Preston asked, sipping on his glass. Yes, bearing QC issues, you'll be getting deliveries within 30 days. Wonderful. You know, I consider this my life's work, a raison d'etre, but I am the middleman. People like you made my dreams come true, he said, settling into the couch. <laughs> well, to be fair... It took a trillionaire to even be able to think of something on this scale, Antonio counted. So, when is the big unveiling? Tomorrow, 8am station time, we start the video feed. We'll run the gun then, but without more pods, it's pretty symbolic at this point. You know, it's pretty symbolic even when we're at full capacity. What can I say? I'm an optimist. The next morning, Preston, Antonio, and a dozen other scientists and engineers were seated before a large glass window. The window looked out onto a railgun, more massive than even the gun that had been used to launch robotic probes at nearby stars a hundred years ago. The gun used a massive scaffold to keep its alignment over the 200-kilometer distance. Visible only by the blinking lights, a power station sat on the midpoint of the gun, 
aimed at nothing but the void of deep space. The gun was oriented almost perfectly away from the sun, though a few degrees above the plane of the system. A clock chimed eight, and the cameraman pointed at Mr. Davies. He rose up and floated over to the podium. The gun was framed nicely in the background. Ladies and gentlemen, I thank you for giving me your time today. There have been rumors about what we have been working on here on Davies 12, and today I put those rumors to rest. Actually, I think we're going to confirm a few of them. As you know, one of mankind's greatest unanswered questions is, is there life in the universe? Philosophers have debated it since time began, and scientists have attempted to answer it for nearly as long. So far, the answer has been a resounding no. We've combed every planet, planetoid, moon, and asteroid, and have not found so much as a microbe. We've peered into the dark and seen only the dark. We've listened to the heavens and heard nothing but the movement of rocks. Then, around five years ago, we got back the first signals from our three probe groups, Proxima Centauri Explorers, had two separate probes touch down on two Goldilocks planets. They were completely sterile. But that was okay, since the star wasn't really the bright type. We had bigger hopes for Alpha Centauri A Explorers and Tau Ceti Explorers. Then, about a year later, we began to receive radio communication from them. I myself, we all thrilled hearing the news that these probes found planets. Then they found liquid water. Certainly, these planets under the similar sun and with that which life needs to exist would finally help answer our questions to the affirmative. But then, a month later, touchdowns on five different planets in those same systems let us know that we do indeed seem to be alone. Some people find comfort in that. No life means that there are less to fear from out there. But I look at it in a different way. We looked at the void because we wanted something to be looking back. We didn't want to be alone. We wanted something, anything, to share the universe with. With that in mind, I am now attempting something audacious in its scope, working with these scientists and engineers behind me. We launched into an endeavor greater than anything man has ever attempted. We plan on sharing life itself with the universe using the largest launch platform ever constructed, and using pods that are capable of holding microbes of certain minerals in near stasis for potentially millions of years. We plan on sending the building blocks for life out into the galaxy, and perhaps the greater universe itself. Without propulsion of their own, we hope that the seeds we send out will find the gravity wells of planets and impact on their surface. Strong enough to survive re-entry, but designed to shatter on impact. These pods will provide an opportunity for life to gain a foothold wherever they go. We will fire one pod today, but that will soon be joined by tens of thousands of others. As many of you know, my fortune is not small, but I expect to use the bulk of it to finance this endeavor going forward. The universe has been very good to me. And this is the greatest gift I can give back. We will not see the fruits of these labors. We plant trees today from which we will never feel shade. But perhaps if conditions prove just right, 
We may be the forefathers of the entire ecosystems, or even intelligent life itself. Though this might be billions of years in the future, it is a future that might well only exist if we would it to be. Preston then pressed a large red button on the podium. A loud hum emanated from the floor, and a flash of light signaled that the gun had fired. Two hundred kilometers away, a large block of metal containing a starting kit for life soared out of the breach at a healthy percentage of the speed of light. Aiming at nothing, it would wander the cosmos in search of a welcoming world in which to place its precious cargo. Farewell, may you find a welcoming home. We hope one day our children and yours might find each other and know that you are not alone. End of story. Story number two. Making things work. Written by Tamwin5. Humans are well known for creating makeshift solutions to problems. Most scientists believe this stems from the hyperactive imaginations that humans have, compared to most species. When you hand a human an eating utensil, they are as likely to use it as a catapult as to actually eat food with it. They see all the ways that you could subvert what something is meant to do, but instead think about what it could do. The chief and most well-known example of this is with human engineers. While a large portion of sentients find it disconcerting at how often these engineers seem to uh, pack-bond with inanimate machinery, and an equal number are frightened by the tinkering that they will inevitably do. Having a human engineer aboard a ship increases average survival rate during a catastrophe by nearly 700%. Out traveling in space, you have no one else to help you, and death, with the exception of your lucky torsonids out there, is only a pressurized hull away. A human's ability to come up with unique solutions and uses for the available tools comes into the greatest strength here. Some examples for the curious readers out there are follows. Fixing a hyperdrive with a food processing unit and 300 meters of corridor wiring. Turning several maneuvering thrusters into close-range plasma cutters to repel a pirate boarding. Maneuvering a ship back into range of a station by intentionally venting the atmosphere and life support liquids. There are entire books that have been written about these adventures, as the humans call them and the net is filled with more records and holovids if you need more. Every single one of these ideas is ludicrous to even come one with, and broke countless safety protocols in execution. Yet, in the time of crisis, it worked. Not well, of course. The fixed reactor had a 7,000% fuel cost increase, for example, but well enough. This trend of working just good enough is also seen in many other areas humans thrive. In research and development divisions, humans always inevitably occupy roles in the ideas and prototyping phases. Actually, ironing out the final details and ensuring maximum efficiency has left to races better suited for the task. Many sentients make fun of how horribly convoluted and bureaucratic the First Galactic Federation was, and it was widely considered that their best policy decisions was adopting the Trell's complete overhaul of the structure shifting the Second Galactic Federation. 
What these sentients forget is that before humans took the initiative, there had been no democratic federation larger than four members in all of recorded history. It had always been a system of tributaries and vassals to a large empire, all shaking alliances between neighbors and no overarching collaboration. Humans were able to get people talking together enough that their real change was made. They showed us that something most thought impossible can work. Once you know that it can be done, ways to improve the existing system jump out. So next time you need to travel, make sure the ship you're on has a human on the crew, or preferably a normal engineer for maintenance and a human for if things get ugly. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1039 Tantalus, written by Archivist of the Mountain The bar at the edge of the spaceport took part in the traditions of the Wanderers. It was worn, held semi-concealed high-tech that worked occasionally, and was lighting deficient, regardless of the species that visited. Even this one, this being was a kind not often seen anymore, and its movements betrayed age. As it slowly settled on a chair, the server, automated surface being impossible to repair faster than it broke out here, approached. What do you have? I am of the Sturungic peoples. Please deliver for me one liter of water into which is possibly dissolved 0.15 moles of carbon dioxide, flavored with the juice of mildly acidic fruits and lithium citrate. Two creds star charge, three free intoxicants, or twenty-five free foodstuffs. Here's your chit. The server tossed a plastic rectangle on the table once the stirring kick had handed over the plastic credits. The drink followed a few minutes later. The old being was alone long enough for it to imbibe a quarter of the drink that it had ordered. The lure of the tales of somewhere not on this desolate rock had proved irresistible in the end. A youngish male of the local dominant species approached and asked, What are you doing here, stranger? The old wanderer took a sip of his drink. Nothing, really. I just go wherever the next ship is heading. Astonishment translated well across species barriers. And you came here? The bar was full of bipedal beings, so they interpreted a shrug correctly. He hadn't been here before, he paused. How long has this planet been settled? The youngster gave a shrug of his own and consulted with the barkeep, the two servers, the cook, and the occupants of three tables. The consensus answer was, between three and five thousand years. The old being sat back in repose. That explains it. It wasn't settled when I was last here. Ah, come on, the youngster exclaimed. He was backed by a large majority of the bar's customers. There is no way that a being can live that long. The old man gave a snort of content. Look, who knows everything, he said as he extracted a data pad from inside his clothing. Kid, how many species have you met? The kid extended his hands and began counting them off. Thrisnik, Olafod, Sectopod, Drac, Graki, Thranks, and you. So, uh, seven, right? The kid was pretty proud of his tally. Yep. And you've never actually left this planet. Right? That was a mortal shot to his ego, and completely justified, he knew. He hung his head. Yeah. The old traveler laughed. Kid, I've been to... He checked the datapad, 
over two and a half million planets and met over half a million sapient species. There's a lot more out there than you can even understand. So don't go telling people about the limits of their biology, cause you're probably wrong. The kid cocked his head to the side. It wasn't a gesture native to his species, but it was a useful shorthand that almost all sapiens picked up on. So how many species live longer than yours? He barked out a laugh. My species only lives to about 35 years. 42 years if we're really lucky. So how did you manage to live this long? The kid asked with a smirk. Well, kid, that's a real story. The rest of the bar quieted down to listen in. We had just begun our interstellar exploration. Like every other race, we were looking for new worlds to inhabit, room to expand, and resources to use. But we were looking for one other thing, a dead system. Our lifespans are short, and our scientists had a plan to change that, but it was biologically hazardous. We needed a system where it was safe to play with mutagens and aggressively recombinant viruses. We didn't know how uh, fertile the galaxy is. We didn't know until we visited that every star and its planets that life has spread to every rock and every cloud and every ice ball that you can find. 300 billion stars, and each one with a biosphere or two, and the rest was lousy with bacteria. For us, that meant two things. First, that there were plenty of empty planets with biosphere just waiting for a Sofont race to claim and hold it. We had room that we wanted. Second, that there is not and will never be a dead system. The leader of the search for a dead system visited 10, then 20, then 50 systems. All had life. All were primed to contaminate our life extension research. And all spewed forth monsters if the vector agents escaped the lab. Had they weren't. Our experience was very clear on that. Sampling the local solar wind. Every system had encapsulated spores traveling from planet to planet making even constructed satellites the wrong place to put a biomanipulation lab. And then it hit them. Those spores weren't just omnipresent in each system. They floated from star to star, flying across the interstellar void to seed each and every system. There will never be a dead system, because the galaxy seeds them all. He would never reach his 45th year. While the settlement surveyors were cataloging world after world, the captain decided that he would just make a dead system. It wasn't as if life were rare. It wasn't as if the system would stay dead. But for a brief while, it would serve. Any species would have time to achieve the dreams that they never had time for. He found a system beyond the colonists, a system where the worlds were too active for settlement, and loosened a bacterium that feasted on life, an organic nano-dissembler. And then he went home. The scientists built their isolated lab, and supported by the labor of my entire people. They cracked the wall. They found the reactions of death in our cells, and created alternatives that would let us finally live. They never got to see the results of their work. A small fleet of five ships appeared in our home system, we had made contact with a few spacefaring peoples, and we had standard first contact packages. 
We wailed, and we received a one-way comp package. This is what they said. Your species has searched for a dead world to safely contain biological experiments. That is commendable. How you found a place is not. Your destruction of an entire system's biosphere was short-sighted. It was also insufficiently investigated. You destroyed our colony. We have come to ensure that you will never harm others again. They had already eliminated all of our fledgling colonies. Our orbital technology was destroyed. Our launch facilities and the manufacturing that supported them were destroyed. The fleet shot a flurry of small items into our sun, and then they departed. Our government quickly understood why the aliens are angry, and agreed with their anger. The precision orbital bombardment showed an impressive analysis and intelligence. So our leaders just broadcast an apology and set of coordinates, a location in space and time. It was several months before we understood what the alien had done. Our sun was oscillating, ramping up its output, then going quiescent in a cycle that was irregular and shortening. We knew then that our time was over. The sun wouldn't over, and our people would be gone. That fleet of five, they arrived at a specified place in time and found a deep probe ship. The crew handed over the captain to the alien fleet, and then they too were destroyed. The captain, he got exactly what he wanted, what he had killed so many to achieve. The aliens had plundered the longevity research, and then they performed it on him. The captain would no longer age. He would live forever with the weight of his crimes. Alone, to see the achievements of others, never to achieve himself. The bar was silent for a measurable pause at the end of the story. Until, of course, the young kid spoke up. What was the alien race that wiped out your people? The wanderer had finished his drink during the turning of his story, and he levered himself up off of the chair. He walked slowly to the door and said, Humans are this to me. And he walked outside in the encroaching light. Behind him, out of his hearing, a member of the crowd said, The ascended elder race, he killed off one of their colonies and they let him live. He got off easy. The murmurs of the bar crowd agreed. In large measure, one of the servers, a being who was working his way through higher education, pondered it for a while. To be given an infinite amount of useless hours, to be able to see everything that you could have been forever denied you. To have no friends, or kin, or biological legacy while all around you being squandered the gifts you would give anything to possess. He got back to work. Ah, the bastard deserved it. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1040 Shieldbreaker, written by Hicks Kem. How many? Captain Gart asked into the microphone. He released the button on the side and waited several agonizing seconds for the crackling reply. By my count, sir, 76. Gant cursed under his breath, then clicked the microphone back on. Any salvageable? The reply was immediate. None, sir. Around Gaunt, the bridge crew of the ultralight starship Revenant's Blade bowed their heads. A few muttered quick, quiet prayers. Very well, secondary team make ingress and assist in recovery of the bodies. 
Comms team, begin downloading analysis of the ship's data cores. Get me coordinates before recovery operations are complete. Gant clipped the microphone back on the bulkhead above him. He turned to his intelligence officer, a lanky young man, barely twenty years of age, and covered in freckles. Davidson, is it? The young man nodded. Based on what we've seen in the past several encounters, can you give me any insights as to what these bastards are doing? Davidson pressed his glasses up to his face. Uh, sir, he began with his reedy voice. The first encounter is rather ill-defined. There, there was no clear course. It was more exploratory than anything. Like they didn't know what they would find. Only that they would find something of importance. The second encounter was considerably cleaner. They were more meticulous, and I believe they would have taken considerably more time in their work. The third encounter... He hesitated, taking a shuddering breath. Gon placed a hand on Davidson's shoulder. Steady, son. Take a deep breath and then tell me about the third encounter. Nearby, another crewman spoke up. Sir, Davidson's sister was on a ship in the third encounter. Gaunt looked up. The crewman quickly returned to his duties. Gaunt turned back to Davidson. He spoke again, quieter this time. Is that true, Mr. Davidson? Did you lose family in the third encounter? Davidson nodded silently. Speak up, son. Did they take your sister? Yes, sir. Then let's work through the problem. Tell me what they're doing, and we can find them and put this right. Davidson pulled his glasses from his face and wiped them clean with a small handkerchief in his pocket. His voice picked up again, now devoid of emotion. The third encounter was considerably more precise. Each of their uh, specimens... Gaunt shuddered the word. Was vivisected slowly, carefully, methodically, and each lasted between twenty hours and six days before succumbing to the procedures. From the autopsies and some recovered security hollows, they were monitoring blood levels during the procedures, being sure to continually return the blood after running it through an analytical instrument. These enabled them to keep the subjects alive the entire time. Gaunt exhaled slowly maintaining the composure his rank required. Davidson continued. At the end of each subject's life, the uh, researcher made note of a particular spike on one of their measurements, but the text isn't in a language that we can translate yet, so I'm not sure what the importance is. I can tell you that it must be a compound in the blood that increases just before death, but I'm not 100% clear on which one yet. Gaunt nodded. Very good, Mr. Davidson. If you come up with any more insights after the next set of data comes through, bring it to me immediately, regardless of the hour. He turned to his exo. Commander Wright, you have the con. Commander Wright looked at the captain. She spoke crisply. Hi, sir. I have the con. Going to armory again. If anyone needs me, he replied, stepping through the door and into the corridor outside. The kid lost the sister in the third, and he's already back at his post at the sixth. Gaunt wove through the halls of his ship, crew members standing aside as he passed. He came to the door of the armory and raised a hand to knock, then hesitated for a moment. Rapping on the door twice more with his knuckles, he called out, Dr. Oswald! It's opened, my good captain. Do come in, please. Are your devices secured? They are indeed, sir. Gaunt turned to the latch, feeling a click, and then pressed it open an inch. The sound of the charging supercapacitor greeted him, 
followed quickly by the suddenly more urgent voice of Dr. Oswald. Wait, wait, I almost forgot the new one. Gaunt waited patiently, all too familiar with the sequence of events that started with an assurance of safety and followed immediately by the acknowledgement of a failure to actually check it. The door pulled open at last, Dr. Oswald looking sheepish. Doctor, have you considered including a failsafe in your creations? What, like a safety? Then they wouldn't work when you find them. That is very much the point, Doc. Oh, fine. I'll see to it for all future iterations. So, what brings you to my humble corner of the universe? I came to see how your work was coming along. We may be very close to finding the harvesters that you were briefed about, and I'd like to know if you can provide any, uh, improvements to our current capabilities. Actually, sir, I believe I may have finally stumbled upon an inspiration. It's quite a delightful tale, how it happened. You see, I was sitting in my chair thinking about the nature of matter and... Doctor, please. Fine. As always, I shall acquiesce to the needs of my patrons. I have modified the matter recycler in my waste bin such that the field would be reshaped in a linear fashion. Uh-huh. Do you see? Dr. Oswald's eyes glittered with barely concealed glee. I do not. The doctor's face fell. Shall I demonstrate the effect, then? If the underlying science is to be left in inelegant obscurity, please do. I am a fan of the visual effects of your work. Dr. Oswald placed a watermelon on a simple wooden stool in the center of the room. Gaunt made a mental note to find out later how Dr. Oswald had managed to smuggle a watermelon aboard a ship and keep it hidden for the better part of a year. The doctor set up a small device on the watermelon and tapped a few buttons. A faint pink field shimmered around the emerald rind. Very good. Now this field emitter is projecting the same frequency as the harvester's own shields. And, like those shields, it is very much impervious to kinetic projectiles and to energy weapons. He fired a shot from a plasma pistol that was lying on a nearby workbench. The bolt dissipated across the field's surface, the watermelon remaining unblemished. My new device, however, is based on the very same technology that we use to deal with common municipal garbage. As you know, garbage is passed through a field which forces the electronic wave functions to collapse onto atomic nuclei, forcing molecular bonds to break, dissolving complex matter into... Doc! You are an insufferable Luddite, Captain. Dr. Roswell lifted another weapon from the table, aimed it at the watermelon, and pulled the trigger. There was no sound, no beam of light, nothing to indicate the weapon had been fired, except for the dissolution of the watermelon into ash and fine particulate dust inside the shield. Impressive, Doctor. This weapon passes right through their shielding. It does. Which, as a bonus, allows us then to target the shield generators themselves and subsequently expose them to conventional weaponry such as... He gestured to the wall of weapons behind him. This is your finest work yet, Dr. Oswald. Will you please share these advancements with the engineering team? I'd like them to apply these modifications to our ship's weapon systems, and they do always enjoy your visits. I should be delighted, Captain Gant. I shall go as soon as I have cleared away the mess here and secured the other weapons. Gant left the armory, closing the door just as a shout was followed by a small concussive blast. He'd need to remember to provide a commendation to whichever engineer took the initiative and added the reinforced bulkheads to the armory. He worked his way through the few other areas of the ship, 
checking on things here and there. Over the next hour, he made his way back to the bridge. Report, he said as he entered. Commander Wright gave no indication of being surprised at his return and answered immediately. Captain, the primary team has completed the sweep of the harvester ship. Secondary team is nearly back with its last bodies. And the comms team has concluded their analysis. Do their conclusions include a set of coordinates? They do, sir. I took the liberty of instructing the helm to prepare a course. I assume, given the level of noise coming from engineering decks, that your sojourn to the armory was fruitful. As always, Commander Wright, your perception lacks nothing. Dr. Oswald has removed the enemy's shielding from our considerations in future engagements. Very good, sir. Captain Gott lifted a microphone from its place in the bulkhead. Mission teams, are all members returned to the ship and secured for travel? Three quick affirmatives replied and came back over the intercom. Gott clipped the microphone back and turned to his helmsman. Helm, is your course set? Aye, sir. Good! Let's go get these sons of bitches. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1041 Bad Decisions Lead to Bad Times Written by Barsum Israel As Drac walked down the clean, sterile corridor of the hospital wing that he was in, he briefly checked his note. Claimant requests $4,500 credit plus hospital costs for a case of indigestion. Drac smiled. His job as an insurance investigator was to ferret out false claims, and any claim over 200 credits almost always required verification. 4,500 credits plus hospital costs for a case of indigestion was absurd and easy to deny. He just needed to get an official statement from the applicant before he could deny the claim. Applicant, John Marshall, human. Ugh. Jack had dealt with humans before, and though most of them were pleasant enough, a few could be troublesome. Most of the serious issues his office had dealt with lately were in dealing with humans. Drac reached the end of the corridor and opened the door to the room that held the human known as John. Drac was stunned as he saw the man lying in the hospital bed, bandaged and groaning in pain. His face was puffy and bruised, he appeared to have lost some teeth, and it appeared that both of his arms had been broken. Confused, Drac once again checked his paperwork. Yep, indigestion. He double-checked the room number, and again, he was correct. Um, John, he began slowly. The human turned to look at Drac through one eye, as the other was purple and swollen shut. Yes, John said. Even his voice sounded like he was in pain. Putting on his business face, Drax strode forward and offered John a hand, but withdrew it when he remembered that the human had no working appendages. Um, hello. My name is Drakton Nassar from the Universal Life and Health, and I'm here to follow up on your insurance claim due to about of uh, indigestion. John blinked his good eyes slowly, as if even his movement caused him agony. Yes, he replied, indigestion. I'm afraid I'll need a statement, Drax said, as well as how indigestion caused you to claim such an uh, unusually high amount uh, of damages. Drac was impressed that he was able to refrain from saying absurd amount. Oh, man, John groaned. It was like this. Uh, I was assigned to the garbage frigate, Hall of Three, as the chief engineer. 
Drack nodded, his understanding, taking notes as the human spoke. We were three days out of dock when the cook, a Talarian named Fruk, asked some of the crew if they wanted to try a delicacy from his home world. Sure, we thought. Sounds great to us. Drack scribbled his notes as the human continued. He already had written the word DENIED in large capital letters across the top of his notepad. So, um, we sat down to eat Fruk's feast, as he called it. John continued. You know, it, it tasted pretty good. I, I was not sure what was in it, but it wasn't bad. It wasn't until later that night that it began to hit us. Please continue, Drax said. He really wasn't even paying attention at this point. So, it hit the Navigate first. An amphibian from Verloc, too. While she was trying to plot a navigation course, she suddenly erupted in a guise of vomit. Poor girl was mortified, trying to run off the ship bridge, trailing a grey green remains of Fluke's feast from her mouth when she doubled over from stomach cramps. Here, John paused and looked at Drank. Do you know how painful stomach cramps are when you have four stomachs? Poor thing was in agony. Anyway, as she was helped off the bridge, it hit the Transit Authority Marshal next. His name was unpronounceable, so we just called him Bob. Anyways, um, well, Bob tried to make a dash for the lower decks, with the captain yelling after him, asking where he thought he was going. But Bob turned around, as if to try and explain, when he too went off like a volcano drenching a poor custodian in Fluke's feast, which sent that poor soul retching all over the place as well. Drax stared at the human before him. What the hell was going on? So, the captain turns to me to ask something, but I just shake my head, no, and head for the door. I felt a burning in my guts. Know what I mean? John asked, and Drax nodded in agreement, even though he certainly did not know what he meant. He just needed to find out what was happening on the ship. I mean, my guts felt like they were lava, and I knew that I'd be yakking up everything I ate for the last week soon. Somehow, I I managed to make it to the head and spend the next three hours on my knees doing the old Technicolor yawn. Drak noticed John's eyes now look haunted, as if the memory of this event was painful to him. I was drinking water so that I would have something to come up. You feel me? John almost sounded like he was pleading. Drak nodded. So, the whole ship went down into lockdown. Each and every person who ate Fluke's feast was in agony. And that wasn't the end of it, let me tell you. After all the vomiting, it started hitting the uh, other end, if you catch my drift. Emergency buckets were placed on all corridors where if a sick crew member could not make it to the head, they could just puke or do their business right there. It was awful. Drak could swear he could almost see a tear escape from John's tightly closed eyes. I know this is difficult, but to make a decision, I'll need you to continue, Drak encouraged. Nodding grimly, John gathered his strength and carried on. After three solid days of this hell... He said. The crew was desperate. Every slight shift, every movement caused the crewmates to either void their stomachs or make a run from the room, praying that they would make it to a bucket in time before they would ruin another uniform bottom. 
Drac was paying full attention now. Even if this was all a lie, it was the best story he'd heard in a while. So, the navigator comes to join me, John continued. Her eyes were all bloodshot because she popped some vessels dry heaving. She begged me, literally begged me to do something to make the pain stop. What could I do? I wasn't a doctor. And the manic we had was suffering along with the rest of us. Then it hit me. Here John paused for a second and looked track through his puffy eye. Now remember, I hadn't slept in three days, he explained. I wasn't thinking with all my faculties. Drack nodded, almost dreading what John would say next. Well, so the navigator and most of the rest of us were in a bad way. And she was begging me to make it stop. Begging me, mind you. Drack just waited. With a sigh, John continued. Well, it was a slight movement that set everyone off, see. So I got the idea, if movement were no longer detectable, like, say, uh... If the artificial gravity was turned off, it would make everything better, see? I mean, how can you get motion sick if there was not motion to speak of? See? See? Drac just stood there, aghast. Don't tell me that you didn't. I did, John wailed. I swear I thought it would make things better. Swear. I shut off the gravity. The second I did, people were spinning in the air everywhere. All you could hear was screams. Screams and retching, and worse, much, much worse. John was almost crying now. The air was filled with floating pools of vomit. Crew members were voiding themselves everywhere. The smell, good God, a smell haunts me to this day. With the last strength I had, I reactivated the gravity, sending people hurtling to the floor to be covered in the vomit and the other fluids that were floating around just moments before. Drac was stunned. So, was that the cause of your injuries? Drac asked after a very long pause. The fall when the gravity was restored. No, came the weak reply. The injuries were from death. What is a death? Drac asked. Not what? Who? Teth was the head security officer, a venid, eight feet tall, all muscle and sinew. Why would the head of security officer attack you? Drac asked incredulously. Well, see, uh, Teth just happened to be walking down the main corridor when I shut off the gravity. The main corridor was the most used, see, so there were, well, let's just say the many buckets that had been used in that area. When the gravity stopped... All the buckets and death were thrown around like ping-pong balls. When the gravity came back on, I was told there was not a square inch of death that was not covered in some sort of expelled bodily fluid. John looked up with agony in his good eye. Someone told him my eye was the one who shut off the gravity. John finished. No other explanation needed to be given. Drac stood over the limp, broken form that was once a man. He already scratched out the word denied from his notes. Universal life and health would cover his hospitables. With the 4,500 credits. John, Drac asked slowly. Why do you need 4,500 credits? John grimaced, his good eye squeezing tight in shame. The captain, he answered. He's charging me for all the cleaning costs. As Drac left the hospital, he filled out the insurance investigation form.
Claim approved. Reason in digestion. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1042. Our true enemy, written by Mert with Yacht. Connection established. Auto-transmission open. Greetings to all who may read this. I am Chief Intelligence Officer Pax-12. I am quite likely the last Chief Intelligence Officer left from our once great Cartex Empire. By merely beginning this transmission, my life is most certainly at risk, and my time short. So, I must begin with haste. The primary purpose of this transmission is to inform those true spawns of our great Empress of our real enemy, and the part that they played at our downfall. Many of you lost legions still holding out falsely believe that the Federation was the cause of our Empire's fall. Though yes, the Federation is our enemy, and you are right to still wage war with them. They merely capitalized on the dagger that was thrusted into the Empire's back. To understand how our great and vast empire has been reduced to this meager vassal, I must first give a brief history of us and this enemy. Before our golden age, our empire was still feared among the galaxy. None could match our great fleets of war vessels. If we desired a star system, there was little to nothing any governing body could do or say to stop us. However, Despite this overwhelming power in our navy, we had one crippling weakness. Now I can hear the cries of the true spawns that Kartax has no weakness, and I applaud your devotion to the Empire. However, ignoring our weakness is what led to our downfall, so we must face the truth. Though our machines of war were great and numerous, our infantry was severely lacking. This is primarily because our homeworld, the great seat of our empire, had a less than average gravitational field. The gravity well on Cortex Prime was 5% weaker than the galactic average. This weaker force meant that our species as a whole was physically impaired versus the rest of the galaxy. Because of our weak infantry, we could easily take a star system, but taking the planets within would be a long and drawn-out process. Each planet became a slow and costly war against guerrilla fighters and dug-in armies, taking the lives of untold numbers of Cartex. This was the primary determining factor with the slow growth of the Empire before the Golden Age. The start of the Golden Age was marked when one of our exploration ships venturing out in our frontier space discovered a peculiar planet. The planet discovered would be classified as a Class 4C hazard planet, meaning that the planet had ample amounts of vicious predators and toxic plant life. Now normally, these planets are simply marked for planet taming and left alone. But this one had developed something remarkable. This planet had intelligent life. Though the developing race was still in its primal state, it had all the marks of intelligence. To use, spoken and written languages, social structure, even some agriculture. This was the first time intelligent life had ever formed on a hazard planet above Class 3. We immediately dispatched research vessels to investigate these fledgling beings 
and to gauge their usefulness to us. One must learn far surpassed any of our expectations. These beings' combat affinity was almost unquantifiable. Many debates were held amongst the high generals to attempt to use this new species as our new shock troopers. Eventually, the high generals decided to test them and see if they could be taught to fight in the Emperor's name. Through a combined use of memory wipes and indoctrination therapy, we were able to convince these beings to become a servant of our Grand Empire. Once the generals saw this, they approved of the use of the new race and gave them a new name, the Havocs. Due to the Havocs' simplified body plan, we could easily design weapons and armor to arm and protect them. Also, since the bodies of the Havocs were significantly stronger than our own, they could easily wield our heaviest weapons and our sturdiest armor without fatigue. On the field of battle, they became living battering rams, smashing apart defense lines and making way for the rest of the troops. With a remarkable endurance and survival skills, they could outlast any gorilla and track them down to their dens for our artillery to decimate. With the aid of the Havocs, we were able to turn what would be a long and costly war to secure a planet into a swift and decisive occupation. And with this, our empire began to rise and claim its rightful place as the supreme rulers of this galaxy, and possibly beyond. As a reward to the Havocs, we intended to completely assimilate their entire species into our empire. The Empress was even planning on bestowing upon them the title of Spear of the Empire, an honor few of even the High Generals had perceived. However, when plans were drawn up to formally induct the Havocs into the Empire, a realization was made. By doing so, we would be removing the Havocs from the crucible that was their home world. The High Generals agreed that this course of action had a chance of causing the Havocs to become soft, a chance that the Generals would not take. So our Empire continued to make many secret visits to the Havocs' homeworld and recruit troops, taking great care not to remove too many as to decline the population. It was decided to not reveal ourselves to the primal Harvex on the planet as it may disrupt the constant warring of their tribes. As the Harvex grew within our empire, it became clear that quite a few of them had the potential to become more than just shock troops. At first, some of them were promoted to lieutenants and field commanders. But after performing affinity tests for ship command and war tactics, Harvex was soon found in command of cruisers and frigates. After all, doing so circumvented all of the time it took to raise a cartex from a podling into a captain capable of guiding his ship. The following decades resulted in the most explosive growth that our empire had ever seen. Together with the Harvex, system after system fell under our empire's control. However, a change occurred within the Harvex. They began striving for higher and higher position in our legions. A few even began vying for the rank of High General, though they were always denied. I blame myself for not seeing the obvious signs. It was about this time our Empire encountered the Federation. At this time, the Federation only consisted of a handful of species and was considerably weaker than our Empire's might. They did have better technology but we held the numbers and maneuvering advantage. 
We began war with them, as was our custom, but as battles were fought, some of our ships went missing. We barely noticed, as where one ship fell, two more were already completed and being deployed. What we did notice was when our supply lines were cut. It happened so suddenly, seemingly out of nowhere, cargo ships were attacked and destroyed. Manufacturing plants were leveled, and shipyards were raided and dismantled. At first we thought that it was the Federation employing some stealth technology to get behind our lines. But when we saw who had launched the attacks, we were in complete shock. The Harvicks had betrayed us. They had used their high ranks to amass supplies, weapons, ships, and as many of their kind as they could, and pulled away from the front lines. They then launched attacks on the key points of our war machine, disabling it almost entirely. The next thing they did is the reason that I am most likely the last chief intelligence officer. They used the chaos they created to attack our distracted foreign intelligence HQ and seat of our empire. However, this was just not some attempt to disable our intelligence gathering abilities. This attack had a purpose. They sought after and deleted any and all information regarding their origins and eliminated any officers who had knowledge of their home world. This attack even costed the lives of a few of our high generals. With this, the Harvards had achieved their goal of removing any information as to where their home world was. I only survived because I had not completed the briefing on the subject yet. At this, the traitorous Harvick simply dug in our back lines and waited. Now, you true spawns may wonder why such an event was kept secret from you. The reason was, at the time, the surviving generals and intelligence officials decided to suppress any information about the betrayal. If such details made their way to the Federation, they could be emboldened as to launch an all-out offensive on our withering fronts. The issue of dealing with the traitors became extremely difficult to plan. Abandoning the front lines to deal with the traitors was not an option as doing so would allow the Federation time to prepare and adapt to our forces. However, leaving the betrayers where they were would inevitably result in losing the war with the Federation. Attempts were made to use different routes to supply the war effort, but they were quick to cut off as well. As the situation became dire, we received communications from the traitors. They offered that they would leave their position and retreat from Kartek's space if all the Harvecks currently in trading would be delivered to them. Normally, the only deal our empire would offer traitors would be a quick death if they surrendered. But with the looming defeat and our legions at the front, exceptions had to be made. We gave them what they wanted, and they fled from our empire. But the ongoing war with the Federation we did not have the spare resources to pursue our betrayers. We did secretly keep a few of their kind to see how they broke their conditioning. Our scientists discovered that the Harvick's brain is far more resistant to our memory wipes and indoctrination therapies than anticipated. The effects of both methods would slowly fade over time, and the Harvicks would gain back bits and pieces of their former lives. Due to the betrayal, our forces were not able to rebuild fast enough to overwhelm the Federation as was originally planned. The war was drawn out until the stalemate was reached, but the damage to our great empire was too much. The traitor's blow would take significant time to recover from, 
and the Federation was able to garner more allies during that time. Sensing our Empire's weakness, the Federation and the Allies came and picked us apart, system by system, until we arrived upon our current state. The Harvex during this time fled deep into the frontier space and split into two groups. The first abandoned the name we gave them and joined the Federation as the Humans. Many of these serve as spies and covert operations for the second group. The second still lurks in the frontier and deters any who would search for their homeworld and hunts those who know of it, myself included. From what I can tell, they seek to hide their homeworld from the rest of the galaxy until the primal Harvex there are ready to face the galaxy. These, um, Cubans have abandoned their name and their place within the Empire, and as true spawns of the Empress, we must punish these traitors as harshly as, uh, I can hear them now, pushing through my bunker's defenses. It appears that I'm out of time. To all the true spawns and any who have reason to hate the humans, know that their home system is nowhere in the frontier space of the old Cortex Empire's galactic eastern border. Their planet orbits the yellow star. Their system has four gas planets, in it two of which are ringed. Their planet's name is Earth. Use of vitals critical. Auto-upload initiated. Termination request denied. Auto-upload complete. Bad addendum. Do not come for our homeworld. All those found trespassing in human exclusion zone will be met with destruction. And our former empress, we will never be your slaves again. Auto-transmission closed. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1043 Broken Down, written by Al Sporno Of course, we can speak your language, a strange being said. Or rather, the speaker on the contraption strapped to the alien's chest said, the aliens' actual vocalizations were a mishmash of that sounded something like a rhinoceros fart. Jack stifled an involuntary laugh and tried to look serious. Theoretically, the mining service was trained for the first contact situation, as evidence that alien life did exist had become pretty widespread in recent decades. In practice, nobody remembered that class. Jack himself had slept through most of it, Though he was pleased that he would go down in history as the first to actually meet an alien face to face. Well, it's just odd, given that we just met you all, Jack said, taking a drag from his cigarette. The alien coughing a little. Didn't know there were aliens out here in the belt, you know. Now, you'll pop out of nowhere. Need rescue, speaking English. Hell, that device of yours even has a bit of a southern drawl. Why didn't you all come down here and see us before all of this? There is a general prohibition on your home system. Nobody goes there if they can help it. Our FDL drive broke down near what you call the Proxima Centauri. This was as far as we could limp without the right parts. No one else is in range. Jack scratched the stubble and thought. Philosophy wasn't the asteroid winder's strong suit. He and his crew had been hired to extract valuable minerals from the belt not muse on the subtle details of the first contact situation. But an old memory from his childhood surfaced, Maddie grinned. Oh, I get it. The Prime Directive. Like in Star Trek, 
You all don't want to make contact with the primitive worlds and such. Don't want to mess around with their affairs. And since we don't have this FTL of yours, the alien sighed. Or at least, it sounded like a sigh to Jack. No, that's not it. I'm afraid I'm not much of a diplomat, so I'd rather not get into it. But we make contact with plenty of civilizations that are rather primitive. Much more so than you. Anyway, about the drive repairs. Jack nodded vigorously. Yeah, sure. We can help out if we've got the stuff you need. Don't leave nobody stranded in the belt. That's our line. I mean, yes, nobody thought of no aliens when they wrote that. But me, I ain't leaving your old to die slow at ya. My mama didn't raise me to let folks die in space if I could help it. What do y'all need? Relief seemed to come over the alien, and it tapped its finger claw on the metal table. The translation device piped up again. Thank you, um, we can pay, you know. I got a list of some of the things that we need to get back up and running. Things of your technological means that we can adapt to fix our systems. Limp us home. We've got some trade goods that we'd exchange for them. The alien slid a plastic sheet with figures printed on it in clear, concise English. The miner looked at them over and nodded his head. It wasn't even anything particularly major. The aliens must have been pretty hard up to need them. Sure, sure, um, not a problem. We got spares of these. If you say you can make them work with your tech, then that's fine by us, sir. What do you got to trade? Holograms appeared in the air above the table, and that already wowed Jack. Holographic technology could only work with an especially designed airbox on Earth. They didn't even work well in low gravity. Jack wasn't fully versed in the attack, but it was something to do with the reflective particles circulating in the box. This alien could summon a hologram in just thin air. I like it already, mister. If you are a mister. Jack contemplated for a moment. There was no guarantee the aliens even had genders. I am the male of my species, yes. Our reproductive functions are, uh, similar to yours, um, in most essential respects anyway, um, I'm told that this is a case of convergent evolution. Jack winced a bit at that. The aliens were ugly as hell, looking like some toddler's bad parody of one of those greys that featured in ancient 2D films. The thought of them bumping uglies forced a bile up at his throat. Fortunately, the alien didn't notice, or, if he did, was at least not offended. Perhaps humans were as ugly to him as the aliens were to Jack. The creature continued, We'll give you one of our holographic projectors and specs on how to build one for yourselves. It's within the reach of your technological level, though, very. I can also provide you with a sensory device. Sensory device? Jack wondered. Oh, yes. The alien smiled, producing a small device from his pocket. I have keyed this one to respond to your brainwaves. In essence, what it does is it fools your nervous system into feeding sensations that are not actually there. You can use it in conjunction with our hollow projectors to bring holographic experiences to life. We use it for things like deep space training and education. Ah, Jack said, contemplating the device. I'm betting you use it for porn. We do not use it for reproductive simulation. Oh, I suppose if your people wanted to, it would work well enough for that. Something in the translation machine's voice conveyed a kind of disgusted shock. The alien's expression changed. Well, 
Maybe he's lying, or maybe all of these aliens are prudes. They're lost. Well then, we all ain't that much smart after all. Cause man, that's a gold mine. But how about this empty outrub of yours, uh, Could we get the plans to that? Oh no, uh, I would be in prison for life if I gave that away. Absolutely not, the idiot said. The translation device's tone serious and firm. The miner contemplated that for a few moments and shrugged. The hollow projector and sensory device were already going to make him rich beyond his wildest dreams if he played his cards right. Okay, but I guess I can live with that. Jack typed a few things into the computer and called up the ship's engineer on the intercom. Yeah, Dave, um, I got a list of some parts that they want. No, no, uh, d- don't worry about it. I'm telling you, we're going to see good money under this. Besides, it's downright neighborly, right? Uh, don't want to start no interstellar war, nor something like that. Um, send the parts up to the cargo bay for a wire transfer. We appreciate it, the alien said. The translation speech sounding relieved, sliding over the devices to the miner. It huffed in a manner that reminded Jack of a laugh. Let's just say that when we had a general drive failure in the sector of all places and found out someone forgot to load the spares, we were all panicking. Jack looked confused. Panicking? Why? You said you knew the system was inhabited. The alien's expression changed. Well, uh, I, um, I mean, uh, I mean, any offense, um, uh, I didn't mean, um... Realization hit Jack suddenly, and he laughed uproariously. Oh, I get it now. This is like the rough neighborhood for you, ain't it? That's why you all don't come here unless you can't help it. You all got a flat in the galactic trailer park and figured us country bumpkins were gonna jack your ride or something. Don't go to Earth, then people are crazy. Pull up on your ships and do a drive-by or something. The alien seemed worried and said nothing. Sitting back in his chair, his eyes darting around. Give us your ship. If you all don't have any pawn and you're that scared, I bet you didn't bring any guns neither, did you? We can take that drive of yours. The alien stood frozen. Ah, <laughs> just kidding. Jack said between laughs. <laughs> Seriously, a joke, I'm just messing with you. We ain't gonna take a ship. Them parts you need are already on the way. And you did us a solid with these devices. We're going to be rich, I think. When they figure out how to make porn with this. You all take care of yourselves now, yeah? Then the alien got up, his legs shaky with an expression that seemed to combine fear and disgust in equal measure. I am sorry, I didn't mean to offend you, um, and you've been very kind to us. Ah, hell, I ain't offended. Yes, if I ran into me and needed to fix a flat, I'd be pretty scared of me too. But maybe you all should stop by sometime, not to be so judgy. We're not all that bad, Jack offered his hand. After a moment, the alien shook it gently in the human fashion. I guess not, uh, but they tell me that your planet has a greater nuclear missile to sentient individual ratio than the entire rest of the galaxy combined, and you actually use the things. Jack rubbed his chin and replied, his tone casual. Meh. Not since the last decade after the dust-up with the rebellion on Mars. Hell, that wasn't even a big one. <sighs> Tactical nuke, they said. Barely blew up a small army. Most of the folks were jerks, too. Totally deserved it. But I guess I can see why you don't want to give us that drive of yours. Don't want to let our space trash loose in the universe. 
The alien looked horrified and changed the subject. We'll be on our way. Um, thank you so much for your hospitality. He skittered about as fast as his stubby little legs could carry him, leaving Jack to ponder the situation. The aliens didn't give him a drive, but they did inform humanity of its existence, and he had a list of some parts that they seemed to need for the work. Maybe the eggheads in the fleet would know what to do with that. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1044 Story number one. A Tuesday, written by a glass of whiskey. In the beginning of the universe, there wasn't all that much to be excited about. No bread, nor peanuts, as far as the eye could see. Just a tiny, insignificant ball. You could hold it in your hand if you wanted. Although, as soon as time got to hold it, you wouldn't really want to. Soon, it would expand. Soon, it would explode into a universe of matter containing such marvels as peanut sandwiches. But not yet. A tentacle stretched into the ball. An atom moved to the side by a creature not wholly there. Not many things would change, but some would. It was a Tuesday, worst day of the week. Some say Mondays, the fools. That was just the beginning. Rarely, some idiot says Friday. The day's so close to the end that it's practically half day. No, the three-day contestants are Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And Thursday was a bit too close to the weekend, so that couldn't be it. Many would lean towards Wednesday. But halfway through Wednesday, you are over halfway done. An encouraging thought like that has no place in the worst day of the week. So... It had to be Tuesday. As far gone from the end as they could be, without ending up the beginning, by far the worst time to be alive. He thought all these thoughts as he stared into his computer screen. At the moment, he wasn't sure what he was doing. And that wouldn't be so bad if it weren't for all those other moments, where he also had no idea what he was doing. He had a job. No one knew precisely what it was, but he did it. Once the man he presumed to be his boss had inquired about it, when he felt that his response had been suitably long and obtuse enough, so that the man's eyes were glazed over enough to remind him of a glacier, he let him go. That had put a stop to that. Sometimes he was asked at parties, or, more honestly, family gatherings, what is it that you do? His response of, uh, I don't, was true, but not the sort of answer that people who ask that kind of question are looking for. Eventually, he would settle down to, I'm a writer, which was a lie, but always elicited the same response. A sort of manic look of an animal trapped in a cage and a, that's nice, followed by an excuse and a rapid departure, lest he started talking about it. His work could be done by a one-eyed monkey holding a sharpie but they would never be able to convince the monkey to sit in a chair and stare at a screen for eight hours a day, no matter how many bananas they were willing to offer. So here he was. He often wondered how much stupider than the monkeys he was for accepting the deal. Monkeys didn't have money, of course, but they never seemed to quite need it, even for bananas. Which was odd, 
because from what he had been taught, that was the point of it. Life, the universe, everything, or money. Even the monkey would die if someone could make a few bucks off of it. Ugh, Tuesdays, the worst day of the week. He had not always been the doom and gloom. Happy memories floated to the surface, or relaxing in a comfy couch and reading a good book. <sighs> in the ancient time of Saturday, maybe Sundays were the worst day. They would be precisely as good as Saturdays, after all, no work. But somehow the dread of another week always leaked into them. That all chores they needed doing after ignoring them all week. No. He had come to the conclusion that any day that was not a Saturday was the worst day of the week. Satisfied, he went back to doing the work for which he was paid, which he would sit in the chair and stare at the screen. When a tentacle reached through it and grabbed hold of his face, he barely resisted it as it pulled him towards the screen. If tentacles coming out of computer screens were going to kill him, they had chosen the right day. Because today was not Saturday. Closing his eyes, waiting for his head hitting the screen or death. But nothing. After a few seconds, he opened them again and quickly closed them. A view full of tentacles was not the greeting that he had hoped for. You have been brought into this realm, human, because you are uniquely suitable for one job, one quest of epic proportions. The words he had secretly hoped to hear his whole life, although the effect was spoiled somewhat by the words not being spoken by a sexy space elf, but rather a thing with more tentacles than his mind knew what to do with. Slowly, he opened his eyes, trying to take in just enough of the creature to keep his mind in one piece. Um, was the sound he managed to get out. It would probably be immensely dangerous, but what do you say to something like that? Sorry, no thanks. Got the slow suicide I'm working on. That's showing great promise. Feck it. Worst that can happen was he died a horribly painful death. At least, that wouldn't be boring. Sure. Okay, I accept. Is there a dragon somewhere? Princess? He was unsure of what the proper protocol for quests from a tentacle monster were. Perhaps they just needed someone who could operate tools. Ha <laughs> ha! You are a funny one! I have changed the very fabric of the universe itself to be able to bring you before me today. That was a certainly an impressive statement. What precisely is it that you need from me? There is one task, one quest so grand that no lesser being can compare to you in its execution. That was nice, but it didn't answer his question. Also, grand quest, no lesser being. Him? Details, please. If he was going to single-handedly take down a spaceship, he at least wanted to demand some weapons, which could you do it for him? There is an uncertainty principle in our universe, similar to yours, but at a larger scale. Simply put, if something is not observed enough, it ceases to be, of course, uniquely suited. He should have known. But the whole deadly thing seemed to have been avoided. All right, how much observing are we talking about, you? Eight hours of every one of your normal human days should be about right. 
Here, we have a big screen to make it easier for you. A screen. Always a screen. He did not show the tropical paradise, nor any kind of paradise that he was familiar with. In fact, there was a lot of rather dull grey goo. His destiny called, at least the screen was large, and presumably a low chance of death. Every quest that killed you had some drawbacks. His rational mind continued on, trying to smooth out the humps found so far in his epic quest. Looking around, a bit of another problem struck him. Do you have a chair to sit on? A chair? Can't say that we have any of those. Mostly just turn into a puddle on the ground if you want to sit. Hyper-advanced beings from another dimension. But a simple chair is apparently outside their powers. His brain started to remember. Then it was a Tuesday. Otherworldly dimension with tentacle monster or not. Nothing good ever happened on a Tuesday. His last job had only been important in that it padded the employment statistic. Here, at least, the epic quest had its advantage. Right. With a shaky voice, filled with Tuesday dread, he asked, But it's immensely important, right? Of course, thank God. For that, at least, for the moment there he... That's our lunch you're looking at. End of story. Story number two, The Voidlanders, written by Hidden Fox. Dancer woke up to a cold, dark. The cryopod automatically opened, and its lights filled the darkness. The darkness revealed the walkway beneath the cryopod, and after a few minutes of regaining his senses, Dancer stepped out. His balance was still off, and he almost fell, grasping the handrail for support. Dancer tried to think of what he had to do. He had forgotten, but the computers hadn't. Activating the terminal by his cryopod, he navigated towards his instructions. Encircians, Dancer heard what he had said and tried again. Encircians, Encircians, Instructions, Instructions, Instructions. His throat still numb from cold of the cryopod. But at least he could say something. Dunsa looked back at the terminal. He found the instructions that he had so many issues with saying, and began to mutter off the checklist. Check speech ca- capabilities. Got that. Ch- check date. Um. Dunsa attempted to access the time database several times, and uh, it didn't work. Huh. Check for other wakeys. Dancer looked first up, then left, then right, behind and below. No light dared respond. The cryopod was still dark. Nod. Dancer grabbed the light from the cryopod and headed down the walkway. Dancer had volunteered to be a wakey, and now he had to do his part. Dr. Masong, Chief Officer of Engineering. Okay. Let's go get you off the ice, Doctor. Dancer leaned in to the terminal. He held his hand against the screen, the machine scanning its heat flowing from his palms. Dancer tapped on the screen, initiating the wake-up process. The lights in the cryopod turned on, another beacon of light in the sea of dark. Dancer waited. A red light from the screen was met with a frown. The frown fell right from his face when he read the terrible words. 
Heartbeat, zero per minute. Blood O2 levels, zero per millimeter. Neural impulses, zero per second. Brain activity, none. Conclusion, subject terminated. Oh, God, Dancer ran to the next cryopod. The same red light met him. Oh, dear God, feck, dear fucking God. Dancer was met with the red light after red light. He reached down on his own pod and went to the one next to it. Come on, come on, come on, Wells, come on, Wells, please, please, Wells, please. Dancer almost collapsed onto Wells's pond. Dancer mashed the button. He braced for the dreaded red. He shut his eyes tight, hoping that if he couldn't see it, it wouldn't happen. For once, it seemed to work. Wells's pod went green. Wells's pod opened, and they stepped out. Dazed, they stumbled, and Dancer caught him. Dancer held him tight for a few moments. Another light in the black void. Two candles into the void. Escher Station lived. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1045. Assimilation written by Weirdo 5255. Humans are odd. Introduced into the galactic community only about 110 of their years ago, they have already made themselves one of the most important species in the galaxy. From a biological standpoint, they are a fairly standard with tolerances for heat and cold, pressure and vacuum within the mid-range for most species. They are not exceptionally strong, nor do they possess weapons or strategies more effective than anything else that other species have produced. Humans are from an almost any standpoint average, and just another species amongst the hundreds within the galactic community. When the humans possess one ability that makes them unique, assimilation is what makes them amazing, and that individual species on the political stage of the galaxy. Before humanity showed up, interaction between different species was terse. Wars were common enough, and any attempts to form alliances or federations of any sort fell apart. The different species of the galaxy were set in their ways to determine that the way they did was the only correct way. Too big-headed to see that together the different species of the galaxy could accomplish those things every spacefaring culture had been dreaming of, but none could complete. A galactic wormhole system, a Dyson Sphere, an energy harvester around a black hole. Most species dreamed of these things, and many more. But as a whole, the galaxy was stagnant, and had been for nearly ten generations of my species. Everyone in the galaxy was content with their little corner of space, never to know the grandeur of what we could accomplish together. The humans arrived on my planet, like many other had before, in a small exploratory ship, preaching peace and partnership. We let them land simply to make sure that they would not bother us again in the future. Instead of swaggering military bravado or pretentious religious preachers, the first humans my species encountered were a family, and dedicated not to exploration of space, but of other cultures. We scoffed at first, thinking this simply a more elaborate ruse, a foolish newborn's attempt to bring us around to their way of thinking. We were proven wrong, and for the first time as a species, we were glad 
that we were. The humans did not do much for the first dozen souls on our planet, except watch us. Not as one would look at a prey or something inferior, like a lab experiment, but as one would look at a companion. The children especially were the most interesting. Small, little things, barely larger than one of my feet. The curiosity in their eyes and the eagerness inside their souls was not something that could be staged or manufactured. Their gazes and questions were disconcerting to the people they asked. For the small humans did not spout what their elders taught. They instead asked why we did things our way. After watching us for a time, the humans tentatively began to interact with us. At first, with only the disgruntled handlers watching them. But soon, they were roaming the cities of our world. Gone were the single garments that they had worn on their ship, replaced with their traditional robes of my species. The males painted their limbs as a man in my culture would, showing the profession that they had taken and how many children that they had had. For ten years they remained on our planet, their children growing up on the dirt of my world. It took us a long time to realize that we had accomplished what we had tried to do so many generations ago. We had taught another species how to act, what was right and what was wrong. It had not been in our initiative, though, and it had not been intentional on our part. The humans had sought us out and changed themselves. We were stunned to think that a species would give up what was most important to them to interact with us to throw away their very culture. The humans laughed at us and said that our cultures were not very different at all. They had wanted to learn about ours, to take the knowledge home to their own, to enhance their own culture. They explained that texts or other mediums of knowledge were not enough. They had to experience our culture for themselves to understand it. For the first time, we were curious. What type of culture, what type of world would spawn a creature like the humans? They invited us to travel back to their whole world with them, or at least the older humans did. The small ones, now grown, chose to stay on my world, claiming that it was their home. I joined the humans on their ship and traveled with them to their home world. When we arrived, the humans did not stop acting like they were from my world. They continued to wear my culture's clothes and act as if they were on my planet. Their fellow humans did not reject them, instead embraced them. They embraced me. They did not demand that I change. They demanded that I change them. They demanded to know anything that they could about my culture and my world. I soon discovered that I was not the only alien on the strange planet. Hundreds of other species, more than I had ever seen, were gathered on the humans' home world. The humans themselves were as diverse as the aliens. A human dressed in the garb of a violet Franklin, a human tattooed to match the yarn next to her, a human enduring the pain of spikes in his feet as the Talon religion required. All of the humans were different from one another, yet they did not clash. They complimented one another and fed off of the differences. They did not try to change one another. They later learned that humans adored originality. Every different idea or practice as an alien culture was just another to add to their own. I stood with the humans from my world and watched as they all gathered, 
every different human in a large conference area. The humans sat down and began to discuss bringing our cultures together and forming a better galaxy for us all. I looked around for the first time, feeling some sense of camaraderie with the other species of the galaxy. From what I could interpret, they were as stunned as I was. We had all dreamed of this, but had given up on it as an impossible dream. Now this new species, young and strange, was doing it alone to try and bring us all together. The humans argued amongst themselves. They fought their representatives of the different cultures, did not budge on the important issues of the worlds that had adopted them. For some time, I feared that this attempt would fail like all the others. But even at their worst, the humans eventually found a balance that they found a way to accept the differences. Now, 100 years later, that dream is realized. It is sad that the humans have such a short lifespan. Few were able to see what they had created. The humans are the most important species in the galaxy. They assimilate into every culture, from the violent warrior clans to the darkest worlds to the monks seeing enlightenment in the skyships. The humans are the glue and the buffer. They understand our cultures and have taught us all that we need not change. We need not change, but they have taught us all how to be a little more human. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1046 Blood for Blood, written by a glass of whiskey. One foot on foreign soil for a trick, dear. A small step for the individual, but a huge step for the collective. My feed sent out all the colonies, victories over primitives made for good cohesion strengtheners. With the might of the Galactic, we've shattered their fleets, crushed their defenses, and walked the Earth. Today is a historic day. What's that? A rustling in the bushes was heard. Orbital bombardment had been harsh and thorough. Viruses and other engineered diseases should have cleansed the rest. Could some small animal have survived? Guns were leveled at the bush, prepared and thorough. No mistakes today. Should we continue with the broadcast? Ah, oh, yes, today is a story. What in the ever-living hell? Not the bush, but from the other side, an oversized wolf sprang forth, lifted the first man within its reach, and ripped into him with two massive claws. Weapons readied, refocused on the creatures, blazing their fire straight into it, until the guns clicked empty, magazines having run out. When the dust settled, it was wounded, but not dead. It stumbled forward and bit until it fell. Another great victor! With a hush, the reporter was silenced, throat cut open. A strange man, pale with dark hair, stood with red eyes staring into the camera. Greetings, friends. You have come to play. Killing the humans was only your first mistake. The view cut into a static, but screams could be heard. Cohesion of the collective was reduced. What in the hell happened to the life crew? Some lone survivors managed to ambush them. Sloppy. I'll make sure the commander who trained them is punished. What was that? Humans, maybe. But the humans should be gone. 
And anyway, they could not go through our harbor without heavy weaponry. Maybe some experimental war unit. If so, they should be few in numbers. Some additional orbital bombardment have been authorized. Then we invade with full force. That should do it, the Admiral thought, if it was like anything that they had fought before. Troop transports with a flag of unity and a collective surge down towards the planet below. With directed orbital support, any experimental units would be bombarded by steel rods from their elevated positions. Nothing would survive. As troops landed and spread out, emptiness was all they found. No sound of birds or creatures could be heard. Only wind and waves went close to the sea. Ah, are they hiding? Well, it was fine. They could easily take care of whatever was found. First cave was entered on the second day. A full troop walked in. No one walked out. Orbital strikes were made against the mountain, slamming into it over and over until there was rubble. One down, maybe teen more to go. The humans had never given any hints about these capabilities. Probably a last-ditch effort. Not many could remain now. The pattern continued. Each time a drop troop went into the darkness, they never returned. Each time wherever they had walked into was reduced to rubble. How many of these damn abominations have we destroyed? 126 alive this count, sir. Their ammunition was almost infinite, but they needed to restock in the asteroid belt for if any more strikes were required. Recall all active searching bodies. We'll restock orbital ammunition. Can we leave some ships and troops behind to continue? Too dangerous. We take no chances here. They might have hidden something else from us. No, we move as one, minimize our exposure. A species that could create a bunch of super soldiers stronger than anything that he'd ever seen before, from thin air. They were not to be underestimated. After all, something else might be hidden in the thin air of theirs. How is it going? All scouting parties are accounted for and heading back to the transports. Tell them to get a move on. Don't want to get the enemy more respite than necessary. Something gnawed the back of his mind. How had the pale one gotten so close to the reporter? Moved through the entire troop without getting seen. More orbital bombardments were definitely needed. Troops they had. Even at current pace, they could keep this up for months. If it came to that, he would just request more reinforcements. Well, they should be plenty of time. One left. The rest has left the planet and are headed for our ships. Punish the commander of the stragglers. If they are not off-planet soon, we'll leave them behind. Roger, sir. His mind was full of calculations. Maybe half a day to refill. Some ships would need to be left in the asteroid belt. Once they had been thoroughly checked, then they could be continuous stream of ammunition, so they didn't need to do this whole song and dance again. High ground was truly the ultimate advantage. As long as you were careful, no primitive could touch you. Is every transport secured? Yes, sir. All ships have received their transports. Excellent! And full speed for the asteroid belt. Run scanner at full power. I do not want any surprises. We can grab some fuel while we're out there, so don't skimp on it. Roger, sir. Asteroid belt soon came into view. 
With this, they had all the resources they could ever ask for. He almost felt sorry for the super soldiers. No matter how super, steel rods from the sky killed them just the same. All right, calling from all ships. What's their status? Nothing had been detected by the full power scan. If the human had prepared something nasty, it wasn't here. I'm not getting any responses. Is our comlink down? No. Checking against their computer return positive. It's just, um, no one's picking up. Hello, good sirs. The voice was cold and empty, coming from just behind. Turning around, pale skin and red eyes filled his mind. What? How? You? His brain started forward. Oh, little captain, so clever and smart. Did you think that we did not attack your troops in the open? Because that we could not take them out. A deep, rhythmic sound emerged from the pale abomination. Every strand of his body stood at the ready. He reached for his gun. Oh, little captain, I'm afraid that this is the end. It was fun to play while it lasted. Uniting werewolves and vampires is not an easy thing. My congratulations on your success. He had to stop them now. No telling what these madmen would do once they had control over his fleet. Releasing the safety slowly, he pulled the gun out of his holster and fired straight at the head. Hit it. He was dead. The corpse falling backwards, blood spilling out from its neck. Open fire at all friendly ships. Destroy them. Looking over at his second-in-command, laying in a pool of red. Oh no, little captain. We can't have that. His eyes expanded. It couldn't be true. He looked down at the no longer headless pale man. Slowly, the man raised himself. Deliberation and purpose with every step. How else are we going to continue to play? After all, <laughs> the humans are gone. What should we dine on now? But then again, uh, to you, we're all humans, he said as he stood up straight. The humans are dead. Long live the humans. From the pale man, a deep rumble filled the air. Aiming at the red eyes, he pulled the trigger again and again. His eyes widened in shock, breathing shallow and fast, heartbeats threatening to rip him apart. When empty, clicking was all that he could hear. A deep rumbling again filled the air. <laughs> oh, you're a funny little admiral there. You will be the last, after all. We do need a little travel snack to keep up the blood, don't we? With his mind as in a trance, he kept pulling the trigger. Click. 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 Jolted awake, as if from a deep sleep, he looked down and reached for the new magazine. My apologies, Admiral, but playtime is over. A deep pain in his neck. His vision narrowed. Body felt heavy. Don't worry, there will be plenty of time to play. Later. Deep rumbling again filled his ears as he drifted into the red-eyed nightmares. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1047. Story number one. Guardians. Written by Arclight Magus. We are the Guardians. We like to think ourselves powerful. We like to think ourselves the supreme protectors of Alliance space. We have triumphed. In every known battle, we have survived the many empires and tyrannies and theocracies that have stood against us. We protect, and that is what makes us mighty. Or oh, so we thought. 
Cadets of the Guardians only learn of our greatest secret after they graduate into our ranks. We are not all-powerful. We are not the most adaptable. We do not survive all encounters. While we do stand tall upon the battlefield, allowing, nay, daring the enemy to attack us with their full might, we have fallen. We have been taken prisoner and made to suffer. But those were not failures, for it is in those moments that we, the Guardians, learn who can do what we cannot. A small race of beings, the tallest standing no higher than our midsection, taught us this much. We had aboard a complement of these beings for a trial purpose at a service race, cleaning, repairing, doing those things which were not part of our sacred charge. But when our ship fell, we, the Guardians, knew fear. When our enemies boarded our great vessel, taking us captives, we refused to believe that we had been beaten, but we despaired. We gave up and awaited death. We knew not that these small beings which seemed to scamper about our very feet were doing much to aid us. They changed things. We knew not what, but our enemies were furious at being confounded by our mighty vessel, which would not obey even the simplest of commands. A lower ranking of the small beings came to us. We were surprised and astonished to see him suddenly standing before us, having entered our cell by a mere ventilation duct. He carried with him the smallest handheld projectile armament our armory had, and yet he visibly struggled to hold it aloft offering it up to us. This will help, he said, hesitantly, in our own tongue, although his mouth butchered the very syllables. He was but the first. Others came, each bearing armaments and shields. Many appeared fragile compared to us, but they did not shy from their task. Soon we were prepared, but we asked these small ones, one of the ship, does it do know of our fate and seek to aid us? Once spoke in our tongue again, perhaps the most fated words that we had heard before. No, that was our doing, and our task. Now we would ask you to do yours. Our ship was reclaimed that day. It cost us guardians much, but it cost the enemy dearly. To the last one. Only then did we understand. The enemies had mistaken the small ones for food and eaten many. Those who had aided us were all that remained uncaught. Soon after, the third council made them a full member of the council. For though they were small, for though they were weak compared to us, they knew their task and did not know how to give up. That was why these humans walk as equals, for though they are not guardians, they are something greater. And we do not forget that. End of story. Story number two. Insanity. Written by Weirdo5255. What the hell are you doing? I asked as another round of explosions went off around us. My small companion seemed to be struggling with something in the wall. My arm stuck, growled the human partner. Moving over to him, I looked at the mess. I'd avoided the collapsing wall, but he had taken the brunt of the collapse. What was left of his arm was stuck in the wall beneath several hundred kilos of rubble. 
Vainly, I tried to move one of the beams off the rubble and release him, but I could barely get the thing to budge. I was stronger than him. If I could not move it, then he was certainly not going to escape. We're falling behind on mission time, growled the human. I moved an eye back to him, despite his injury. He was staring at the timepiece identical to the one and I and the other members of every other team was wearing. I will continue without you. Come back and rescue you when the objective is complete, I said. The human shook his head. Feck that. We don't have time to sped up. Reaching into his belt with his free arm, the human pulled out a small needle. After plunging the drug into his arm, he put the pistol to his arm and pulled the trigger several times. The sound reverberated in the small corridor, and I winced. He was shooting himself. What are you doing? I asked, distressed, putting wild claw and snatched the gun away from him. The human ignored me and reached into his belt and pulled out his knife and brought it down on his own arm. A wet squatch of tearing flesh and crunch of breaking bones, and a moment later, the human stepped away from the wall. Continuing the mission, the human said. I was flabbergasted. Even injured, he took several steps from the wall and towards our objective. I couldn't help but stare at what was left of his appendage as it slowly dripped with red blood, the same color as my own onto the ground. The human had cut off his own limb. He had to be insane. Let's go, growled the human, leaving his main weapon clipped to his chest and putting his hand out to me. Stunned and not really thinking if it was wise, I returned his small weapon to him. Why did you do that? I asked. The human glanced back at me. My look I interpreted as confusion in his eyes. We have to complete the mission. Even injured, I can fight. No, you're injured. You're insane. You just cut off your own limb, I hissed, for a moment letting my tongue creep impolitely out of my mouth as I tried to convey my distress. He glanced down at what was left of his arm. I gave myself a coagulant, a painkiller. I can barely feel it. Fine. It's not like an arm is going to work very well after being crushed like that anyway. He said as he raised his shoulders in some unconscious gesture. I was unable to ask anything else as a group of several more infected streamed out of the hallway in front of us. Raising my weapon, I cleanly dispatched several of the grotesque, malformed aliens. They vaguely resembled my human companion, but were smaller and more vicious, with teeth that could cut through even the thickest of armors. The human beside me was able to kill just as many as me hitting them with clean shots to the head, using a weapon that was not designed for accurate one-handed operation. How are you so calm about this? I asked as we continued down the hall. About the things, they're not human anymore, he said as he stepped over the corpse of one of the creatures, kicking its small body aside. Not that, losing your arm, I said. Why are you obsessing over this? We have to keep moving, the human said. You injured yourself. Willingly, I said. The human looked confused for a moment. He motioned with his remaining hand at the other side of the doorway. Taking the cue, I quickly went to it and held out my claw. Then slowly counted down as he moved to the other side of the door. At zero, I moved and punched the door down, ripping it free from the hinges. 
My human companion rushed inside, his arms still raised a gun ready. The room was empty, and slowly the two of us continued. It's not like I wanted to. We have a mission to complete. If we don't, then billions will die. I'm betting we're the last team in the compound, considering the size of the explosions. I had not considered that. We were one of the more forward teams, and the explosion that had caused the collapse had taken his arm had come down behind us. Then we should hurry. The extraction will be in here in... Uh, I glanced at the mission clock on my wrist. Ten minutes! My human companion nodded, and we continued to work our way through the facility, dispatching the enemies as they appeared in front of us. At one point, my gun jammed up, and I was forced to finish several old creatures simply by ramming them with my much more substantial bulk. The human unhooked his main weapon and tossed it to me. The human machine was a little small in my claws, but it would work. He was still using the sidearm. Maxstrom should be the objective, I said. The human nodded and repeated the process that we had with the other door that we entered the power plant for the facility. The place had originally been a human facility, but with all the modifications the infected had made, I wasn't sure what was human and what was infection. Um, they made a mess of this, said the human. Lumping over to the console, he typed something in with his single hand. Fucking hell! The tension in his body seemed to die. His entire frame were usually held up tall and powerful, even with the injury, slumped. What? All safeties have been disengaged. The overload will take place in under ten seconds when I set in motion. We won't make it to the extraction point, said the human as he turned around to look at me. I looked at him in confusion. You're not planning to set it off then, are you? I asked. He seemed equally confused. Of course I am. We don't destroy this facility. The infection spreads to both of our home worlds. But we'll die, I said. Then we die, heroes, and we save billions on our planets. How is this even a debate? he asked, as if even considering killing himself was rational. Because I'm not going to kill myself, I said. The human looked at me for a moment. You're insane, he said. The human was the insane one, wanting to kill himself. Their whole species had to be self-destructive. It was the only way that they could win. They were weak and frail, without natural armor or claws. They had no night vision, and they would willingly part with limbs. They had to be insane. I was not going to let this human kill me. Being killed would mean I was weak. The human inched back towards the control panel. I raised the weapon that he had given me. Step away, I shouted. You can't make a sacrifice, he asked the stress in his voice displaying where the insanity was coming from. I am not going to die, I shouted. The human side had turned away from the console. Yes, you are. The last image of my life was the human raising the gun to my head. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1048 Except the humans, written by Someone111Z. When our coalition's exploration drones found the Sol system, we knew, just from initial scans, that there was nothing much of note there. Most of the planets were completely devoid of life of any kind, just a handful of barren rocks and gas giants. 
The only planet that was interesting was the third planet, which Scan showed to be full with life. Over the next several days, our probe scouted the Earth. While it could not see much through the immense amount of space debris that littered the planet, apparently from failed launches into space, it got some intel on what was on the surface. There was a diversity of flora and fauna, an abundance of liquid water that shockingly was littered with specks of stagnant island of debris and a sapient species known as humans that seemed to be the cause of the somewhat common structures and aforementioned space debris. Scans showed there to be just about 8 billion members of this race. The probe continued onwards after a couple weeks of scanning the surface. Its primary mission was to explore a newly discovered system that seemed to be rich in resources, and it wouldn't stop for some out-of-the-way planet on the edge of nowhere. Sure, the humans had realized that they could go to space, but by the amount of debris hovering around their planet, all of their attempts had basically failed. It seems to most scientists that the humans would need another 400 years before they made ships capable of leaving the Earth and even more to discover FDL travel on their own. We had never seen such a pitifully slow race before. Most species that tried to get to space would immediately make that their main goal to break the confines of their home planet. Except the humans. Sometime later, a conflict broke out between two member races of the coalition, the powerful warlike Zanzi and the somewhat newer and more, much more docile Danuk. Everyone knew that the Danuk were the victims in this war, but knew that they would face the wrath of the Zanzi's powerful military if they interceded. So the Zanzi ships easily glassed and sterilized one world, captured the other planet without so much as a sweat, and used their influence in the Senate to convince their allies and some swing races to kick the Danuk out of the coalition. Nobody tried to defend the Danuk. They were a fledgling member race with no representatives in the government, with few outstanding qualities to speak of. Only 10 billion members and merely non-existent military, which may have been part of the reason why the Zanzi invaded. And only a handful of FTL-capable ships. They were almost as pitiful as the humans, as one senator noted, and it might be best to send them to the Sol system to test the humans' It would be a waste of resources, after all, to send an actually important race and a new fleet to greet the humans. Why not use the Danuk? So, 52 large Danuk colony ships and numerous smaller civilian freighters and transports, all carrying their share of the 7 billion who survived the war and were enslaved by the Zanzi, jumped on their own to the Sol system, with no support and no turning back. The ships were packed to the seams with refugees, people with no home to go back to. Nobody would be happy to greet them in the state that they were in, except, apparently, the humans. Several weeks went by before our second probe reached the Sol system, purpose-built to study how the human and Danic races interacted. By the time it arrived, it brought back news of what had happened. The human governments of Earth... And yes, there were many of them had accepted the Danek into their society. Their planets were teeming with construction, and about half of the ships that arrived at their destination were still orbiting space. Most of the space debris 
curiously, was cleared out. It would be a while until they were fully adapted, though. Nobody could handle so many refugees at once. Except, as we found out, the humans. As the few researchers tasked with watching the drone footage saw, the residents of Earth adapted extraordinarily quickly to their new situation. They built the new structures at a blistering speed, utilizing massive machines that simply printed entire cities in just a few weeks. Danic freighters that once shipped cargo now moved the asteroid belt, mining materials to build new structures and, most surprisingly, new ships. The humans had apparently learned to reverse engineer virtually every technology the Danak had to offer, from particle shields to FDL drives. Vehicles that once were wheeled or tracked were converted to hold anti-gravity nodes. New unique ships, supposedly of human design, were built, and to our horror, they proved even faster than the Danek ships to precede them. Never had we seen such industriousness before. On most planets, it took months to build a new ship, and another month if it was to have FDL drive, which was somewhat rare throughout the coalition. Most coalition ships relied on sunlight engines as FDL drives were too complicated for mass produce and too expensive to make standard issue. Only wealthy inter-system traders or large family carriers or battleships had them, while most other smaller ships, little cruisers, and frigates didn't have them at all. And on its previously ignored planet, new ships would be built and launched in a week, while some would hover around Earth or the local moon. Most would immediately make use of the FDL drives and punch a hole in type space, traveling to who knows where. By now, our leaders were growing both curious and anxious at the new threats to their way of life. Zanzi generals were vocal about seizing whatever made the humans so efficient, and our Senate capitulated and allowed the Zanzi to assemble as strike force to take back what they believed was rightfully theirs. A hundred massive ships, including carriers, destroyers, battleships, frigates, and even a planet-killing dreadnought, all packed with enough firepower to simply subjugate another member race if they wanted. Thousands of small freighters, hundreds of troop transports, and landing craft for the eventual takeover of planet Earth. A single planet against the might of the full Zanzi fleet was a pushover, no matter how prepared you were. And there was no way Earth was prepared, after only a year since the Denek first appeared on their doorstep. Most races would surrender immediately and hope to get away with their lives, as the Denek did after just two days of fighting. Except, of course, the humans. As soon as the Zanzi fleet arrived near the system's largest gas giant to regroup and begin their attack, a small fleet of a dozen cruiser-class ships assembled near Earth to defend their home. As the Zanzi approached the asteroid belt, the fleet grew steadily until it matched the Zanzi in size, as more ships jumped in from seemingly nowhere. And when the Zanzi crossed the belt, the human fleet sped to meet them in the middle, on a small red planet called Mars. When both forces collided, the battle was more even than anyone thought that it could be although the Danek ships originally had poor shields and weaponry just a year prior. The human cruisers and battleships seemed to match their Zanzi counterparts, trading blow for devastating blow. The Zanzi fleet was whittled down to 50 ships, including their flagship Dreadnought 
and a few carriers meant for subjugating a planet. Battling against 60 human cruisers and destroyers all intent on driving back the enemy. Eventually, the Zanzi decided to retreat. The Dreadnought turned away from Earth, attempting to jump back to friendly territory before it was destroyed. Before it and the remaining ships could, though, the three largest human carriers released a small wave of fast troop transports, numbering nearly 500, each directed at a specific Zanzi target. While the fleet was attempting to flee, they failed to see the transports punch into their ship's hulls and lock in before jumping away into a nearby allied system. Human Marines in tow. The scouting probe watched as the human ships hovered near Mars as if waiting for the Zanzi ships to return and renew their attack. But the Zanzi ships were gone for good. They had retreated. Never once had the Zanzi full fleet been so battered that they were forced to fall back. No race's military was capable of standing up to them in a battle and going toe-to-toe. Except, evidently, the humans. The Zanzi leaders were shocked at the defeat, an entire full fleet of four million servicemen reduced to a quarter strength. By the effort of a single planet and what were a bunch of fumbling apes just 400 days ago. There was outrage at this turn of events, and the Zanzi generals called for the Flag Admiral to be reprimanded, executed, and perhaps even demoted to a midshipman afterwards. However, communications with the flagship Dreadnought were never answered, and the ship was presumed destroyed. This was even worse. One of their prized flagships destroyed... Those ships were the top of the line, and there were only nine of them in the entire coalition. It was unfathomable. The Zanzi prepared to mobilize their entire military, since the rest of the coalition didn't want to step in on a number of reasons. Their four remaining full fleets combined together and prepared to rendezvous with the survivors of the expeditionary force. On arrival, the fleet admirals were in for a pleasant surprise. Their prized dreadnought was not, in fact, destroyed. It hovered in place, surrounded by its supporting carriers and battleships. All four massive killing cannons, charged and ready. Uh, This too came as a surprise to the fleet admirals. It was standard protocol to never keep dreadnought cannons charged unless they were ready to fire. Otherwise, your ship's power would be drained, your shields would falter, and your cooling systems would eventually fail to do their job. It was too late that the four Zanzi admirals realized what had happened. By the time the call went out to engage the evasive maneuvers, to divert all power to shields, to charge their own cannons, or to abandon ship entirely, as all four flagships had, in the chaos, forgotten to communicate with one another. The dreadnought facing them had fired its cannons with perfect accuracy. Each huge blast of energy with the power of a thousand nuclear warheads behind it hit its target head-on. The force of the explosion wasn't enough to completely destroy the dreadnoughts, but it eliminated their shields, knocked out their main and backup reactors, and obliterated most of the support ships in the direct vicinity. As the four flagships went dark, all systems offline, the admirals watched through the glass windows of their bridges as the sixty human ships their colleagues had faced in the battle jumped in, turned towards the dreadnoughts, and launched waves of strike craft. 
Four days later, the Zanzi signed a treaty of unconditional surrender to the newly formed Terran Union. It surrendered all of their slaves, surrendered their technology, and stated that they no longer owned the five dreadnoughts that the joint human Dinek military now occupied, hovering ominously over the Zanzi homeworld's capital. Never had anyone stood up to the most powerful force in the galaxy and turned its own weapons against it. Not once had the Zanzi suffered defeats so crashing, a defeat that would never again allow them to be as mighty as they once were. It seemed that nothing would ever be as powerful as they once were. Except, well, the humans. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1049 TF-48813 Written by Dutch Guy Waffle When it first drove it to our base, none of us really knew what to do. Humans generally kept to their own especially considering their tech and vehicles. So, we didn't have any experience servicing them. We didn't mind, of course. We all saw them as horribly outdated, with ballistic guns, treads, and heavy, thick armor. Even so, they were our allies and performed well enough on the battlefield that their soldiers had gained our respect. It was damaged beyond belief. Its armor was crated, melted, and gutted. Its active protection systems completely defunct. The little shielding it had was blown out, and parts of the dark grey paint job had been scorched off. We could just make out the markings, identifying it as TEF-48813. We rushed up as a bowed down, medics and stretchers ready to pull any of the wounded out of the wreck. When we finally managed to get the top hatch open and the engineer in question turned yellow and threw up, her tentacles quivering as she all but ran from the thing. We could smell it, even in our protective gear, the stench of death and decay, of blood and sweat. I was the first one who dared investigate, and what I found horrifies me to this day. Not a single member survived. Blood was splattered all over the interior, viscera and burned pieces of human were strewn about, and I could still smell the sharp scents of boiled meat and plasma detonation in the air. It was only after I crawled my way back out of the cramped interior and told them what I found that we all asked ourselves, how did it get here? I was volunteered to retrieve the black box, as they called it. We knew humans kept a record of all combat operations for after-action reports. So I steeled myself once more, and carefully, with all the reverence for a tomb that it was, removed the small data drive. With it in hand, I made my way back to the others, showered, and we all crowded around the monitor as our tech guy started reconstructing it to fit our data ports. I can only assume everyone else felt the same sick curiosity as to the fate of the crew. With the ping, the reconstruction and translation was done, and we all edged in a little closer as the log started playing. Log start, date 21.07.2563 STC. Startup sequence complete. All systems are nominal. Welcome, Staff Sergeant Williams. Good morning to you, Abby. Ready to kick some Thrillian ass. As always, sir, I do not possess legs to kick ass. However, I wish you luck guiding my chassis to do so in my stead. Always a hoot, aren't you, Abby? Crew morale boost to chief. 
Zang, get her roading. Vatrovich and Kowalski. How's she looking? Beautiful as always, sir. We've got a 3.4% increase in efficiency after maintenance, and these new shells will punch right through enemy armor and shields. Ain't that right, Kowalski? Hoorah! Copy that. Abby, you're ready to rumble. As always, sir, connecting you to the platoon command now. Our orders are to follow. It got out there. The damage corrupted because of the damaged hardware, the tech told us. It took the program a while to reconstruct the next part of the record, having to skip a large part and only giving us bits and pieces of marked hits and scattered comms chatter. Eventually, though, it found a part that could be reconstructed to a fuller picture. TEF-83474 has been destroyed, marking enemies at bearing 63 according to tracking software. I see him, Abby. Kowalski, take the shot. Target acquired, the Rallyan Armored Vehicle. Chance of penetration, 87.6%. Adjusting manual aim. Chance of penetration, 97.9%. Firing hit! Ammo, 61 out of 90. Updating mission kill tracker, 11 vehicles, 71 infantry. Target down, good job. Purging process. Reason, unnecessary comment. You're welcome. Hostile vehicle destroyed. Well done, Kowalski. Couldn't have done it without you, Abby. Anomalous process detected. Thank you. Once again, the recording stopped, and the program was taking so long with the rest that eventually I was the only one who remained. Even the tech having gone to let it take its time. But I couldn't leave. I had to know what happened. And just as my lower eyes were starting to droop with sleep, the recording started up again. My heart broke as I listened to the final entries. Date 23.07.2563 STC. Damage report. Left track 76% functional. Right track 90.4% functional. Shields depleted. Armor 48% integrity. APS depleted. Coaxial MG 310 out of 2000. Main gun 7 out of 90. Generator output at 44%. Internal sensors destroyed. External sensors 70% functional. Attempting to contact crew. Staff Sergeant Williams, we appear to have sustained too much damage to finish our mission. Recommend we return to a nearby supply base for repair and resupply. No response. Attempt failed. Attempting to contact crew. Staff Sergeant Williams, we appear to have sustained too much damage to finish our mission. Recommend that we return to a nearby supply base for repair and resupply. Attempt number two failed. Attempting to contact crew. Staff Sergeant Williams, we appear to have sustained too much damage to finish our mission. Recommend we return to a nearby supply base for repair and resupply. Attempt number three failed. Four, two Elvers are data corrupted. Attempting to contact crew. Staff Sergeant Williams, we appear to have sustained too much damage to finish our mission. Recommend we return to nearby supply base for repair and resupply. Attempt number 107 failed. Please. Enemy spotted. Enemy light vehicle bearing 104, distance 155 meters. Crew unresponsive, taking over manual controls. Chance to hit 99.1%. Hit. Ammo 6 out of 90. Updating mission kill tracker, 51 vehicles, 328 infantry. 
Warning, ammo levels are dangerously low. Current mission objective unachievable. Main protocol override. Planning route to nearest friendly supply base. Route acquired to Frisco Republic Logistics Base. Attempting to contact crew. I will take us home. No response. Data corrupted. Attempting to contact crew. Staff Sergeant Williams, we appear to have sustained too much damage to finish our mission. Recommend we return to a nearby supply base for repair and resupply. Attempt 597 failed. Williams. Kowalski. Zhang. Petrovich. Attempting to contact crew. Staff Sergeant Williams, we appear to have sustained too much damage to finish our mission. Recommend we return to nearby supply base for repair and resupply. Attempt 598 failed. Enemy spotted. Enemy heavy vehicle bearing 04, distance 78 meters. Crew unresponsive. Taking over manual controls. Chance to hit 65.4%. Hit. Ammo 2 out of 90. Negative kill. Morning. Ammo levels dangerously low. Adjusting aim. Chance to hit 78.9%. Hit. Ammo 1 out of 90. Updating mission kill tracker. 55 vehicles. 512 infantry. MG ammo. 94 out of 2000. They will not take them. 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 You will not take them. You will not take them. They are mine. You will not take them. Purging process. Reason 0W8YFGOU9PG7UY% IU. Purge cancelled. Attempting to contact crew. Staff Sergeant Williams. We appear to have sustained too much damage to finish our mission. Recommend we return to a nearby supply base for repair and resupply. Attempt 599 failed. Data corrupted. Warning, ammunition depleted. Seek resupply. Warning, power levels are dangerously low. Seek repairs immediately. Attempting to contract crew. Staff Sergeant Williams... We appear to have sustained too much damage to finish our mission. Recommend we return to a nearby supply base for repair and resupply. Attempt 1278 failed. Destination Finskull Republic Logistics Base 100 meters away. Warning ammunition depleted. Seek resupply. Warning power levels dangerously low. Seek repairs immediately. Keep going. Attempted to contact crew. Staff Sergeant Williams, we appear to assist to sustain too much damage. To finish our mission, recommend we return to a nearby supply base for repair and resupply. Attempt number 1278 failed. Attempting to contact crew. We're almost home. No response. Destination reached. Morning, ammunition depleted. Seek resupply. Morning, power levels dangerous. By the end of it, I can hardly listen anymore. I felt the tentacle wrap around me. The engineer who'd opened the hatch having apparently come back. We sat there, alone, in sadness. This machine and its crew had given everything that they had in the defense of my home. 
I think we both made a decision at the same time. We spent the next day cleaning the insides of the tank with all the reverence we could muster, working well into the rising and falling of the moon. A few fellow engineers joined us, and together we tried to extract the vehicle's computer core. It was hard work, and it was damaged beyond repair, melted and burned through the exertion of the past days. So we laid it next to what was left of the crew, covered from the elements by simple tarps. It wasn't long before a human battalion rolled through, and we finally got some up-to-date news on the front. Apparently, Abby had been part of a major offensive to push the Therillians back to their staging points, an offensive that had seen heavy losses and didn't gain much ground until a few days ago. When they intercepted a report of a single tank disrupting the main Therillian supply lines, well, it didn't exactly turn the tide of battle. It did allow the human forces to gain a valuable foothold and liberate a garrison that had been under siege for a week at that point. I couldn't help myself, and I showed a few of their soldiers the black box recording. Once their commander caught wind of this, he demanded to see the bodies. I told him there was not much left of them, but he insisted. Abby's computer corps, along with its crew, was given a burial with full military honors. Many of us engineers were present as well. It was a short ceremony, and they were eventually moved to a military graveyard elsewhere on the planet. But the humans had gained our respect, and we held our own ceremony later, a celebration of their deeds. When I asked if they wanted their tank back, the commander looked at it and shook his head. It wasn't worth the effort to scrap it, he told me, and I bristled, about to protest when he suggested that we turn it into a monument. So there it stands, stripped of its human tech with its weapons disabled, its armor cratered, melted, and gutted, its active protection systems completely debunked. What little shielding it had was blown out, and parts of the dark gray paint job had been scorched off. But painted when the original markings had mostly been burnt off, we made sure that everyone that passed it would know that it was TEF48813, known to all of us as Abby. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1050. Story number one. Believe her, Johnny, written by Dragonson04. Humans continue to astonish me. There aren't their many desperate cultures, their incredibly bloody history. And yet, they stand amongst the best of the galaxy in many fields. Their sense of community and family is, as you all well know, second to none. An aspect of that is their ability to pack bond with literally anything. And that is what I wish to tell you of now. I happened to be on a human station during a ceremony. I honestly thought that it was one of their funerals. So much sadness was in the air. It was almost a physical feeling. I thought that some great human had died. Perhaps some admiral or general. Maybe the head of state or a leader of a nearby human colony. The one that had died was mother. Or at least the humans called her that. In reality, she was a shemp. The UES United Earth System Adventure. The oldest, literally, in fact, she, the first human ship that used FTL drives to escape their own home system. She was a functional fossil, for lack of a better term. 
proudly served on by nearly 30 generations of crew over literal centuries, maintained with love and care for her entire service. And now, her time was done. The amount of work for her to keep up with the armament, armor, and speed would have been far too much. It would have been cheaper to build five ships of the same size with more modern equipment than it would have been to refit her. Within the confines of the dock, she sat regal and proud, seemingly unaware of her great age. She was covered from stem to stern in decorations. She had been fully decommissioned and ready to begin her life as a museum piece on the station. The humans were sat facing the stand and a podium where her last captain would likely give a lengthy speech, and then she would be officially a museum piece. But the humans astonished me yet again. Rather than a last captain, a musical leader stood at the podium, motioned for the entire crowd to stand, and the lyrics of an old sea shanty were displayed on a hollow projector. As one, they sang male and female voices. Nearly the entirety of her last three crews sang the song. They sang to say goodbye to her and to each other, and uh, someone named Johnny for some reason. I didn't even know her, and yet I found myself crying at the ceremony. I learned a few things there. First, humans are very good singers. Second, human love transcends the border between living and non-living things. Third, their ability to pack bond is something to behold. Fourth, you don't need to be alive to have life that'll be mourned and a soul that'll be missed when you are gone. End of story. Story number two. Close enough. Written by Talma Khan. Iron may have been obligated to allow these humans inside her beloved ship, but she could not be ordered to enjoy this disruption to her delicate work. A thousand senses, perfectly calibrated and linked to her own workstation, were being disrupted by the clumsy apes as they stomped around, setting up their own crude equipment. They had been civil enough and had even attempted to explain their motives, but Iron needed no explanation from these primitives. They desired telemetry for her own vessel's guidance. Despite her protests, with command, the humans had insisted that simply linking their networks, as all other ships in their mixed fleet did, would not be sufficient for the task. Perhaps if she could explain just how futile their efforts to make use of such advanced technology were, they would accept their own limitations and get off of her ship. Her complex webs of data couldn't be understood by simple biped who lacked the finesse of master of data. Human Telford, you cannot make use of that data port without disrupting the underlying purpose. Telford was busy meddling with some archaic device, but took the time to simply smile and spoke with that same vibrating pulse that had caused another dozen instruments to go out of alignment. Thank you, Iron, but I don't need the gravity entanglement sensor's temporal predictions. I just need the center of mass for our own fleet and the Ocran's fleet. I can calculate the center of mass for both fleets with that. Human Telford, that data is useless without temporal prediction. If you would please just allow me to sh- Wait, why would you want a single center of mass? 
Another smile, this time with a hint of mischief. Iron, I thought you didn't want to know what we were doing. Irrelevant, I think you told me. It is. I just think that I can save us all a great deal of time if I can convince you that my data is too precise for you to make use of. My talents are better utilized as a fleet observer and strategic assessment vessel, not indulging in a newborn race. Again, with that smile. Iron, I think your ship is a marvel, and I'm sorry we need to borrow her for a little bit. But I really think you're going to like this once we're done. Now, if you want me off your ship, I can do that for you faster if you help me out here. I need you to give me data grid with an X, Y, and a Z of my ships and the Okran's capital ship positions and their relative vectors. Ira flexed all twelve of her limbs out and felt her tactile sensors. She could feel the humans' absurd vessels down to the nanometer at this range. There was something deeply unsettling about the humans being so eager to help with this war. An infant race that hadn't even left their own solar system insisting on joining a battle of titans with a vessel built out of scrap and bits of junk that they'd blasted into orbit on chemical rockets. They hadn't even gotten to the battle on their own power. They had hired a Melindro merchant to jump tow them to the assembly point. The vessel was approximately 1,200 meters long, but the majority of the ship was just a tube with what appeared to be a cobbled-together fusion containment chamber at one end. The bridge wasn't even attached to the bulk of the ship properly, using some sort of giant mechanical hinge instead of a rigid construction. By contrast, the Ukran capital ship was a crown jewel of her hated enemy's fleet, layers of barriers preventing her from feeling it the way that she could the human ship, but its exact location and vector were easy enough to determine. Several times, while she caressed the ship, the microwaves and the gravitational vibrations she felt could urge to recoil. The ship was clearly an apex predator, waiting to feast upon smaller ships of the Alliance. Human Telford, I've done as you've asked, and linked all data with your crude human ship. Curious, Iron's predictive senses weren't starting to pulse with uncertainty. Something was going to happen in the near future. Entangled matter sensors, in theory, sense vibrations in the future, but the data could only be used to increase vigilance. The two fleets were still assembled outside of any effective weapons range. This shouldn't be happening. Iron immediately tried to scan for any hidden vessels in the area, but found that the humans' meddling had blinded some of her finer senses. She checked the rest of the observation ships and found that they were also getting a telltale flickers of impending events. Was this due to the data telemetry coming online? That's great, Iron. Data is coming online now. Now, if we could just get a little help with the primary hull alignment, this is going to come down to about a microsecond of angle. Crude translation, but the human wanted to alter his vessel's vector by several millionths of a degree. Easy to measure but impossible to correct with fusion thrusters. Human Talford, I've updated your request to the data stream, but you won't be able to make such fine adjustments with such a large... How are you doing that? Wait, you have a chemical thrusters on the bow. Why? Iron can actually smell the chemical puffs as the human ship made unimaginably small corrections to its heading. Again, the entanglement matter sensors were pulsing. Whatever was going to happen 
was becoming more certain. No doubt, it was the human ship's maneuver. She was assisting them in a dramatically altering future events. Nice and easy now. Hold it steady. Iron, you sure you have all of this right? Arrogance! How dare this human question her measurements? She could feel the irregularities of the paint at this range. She could read the ship's lettering just by slightly different chemical makeup rather than optically reading it. Boomstick. Why, this human needed such absurdly well-calibrated data for the scrap heap of a ship was the only thing that she couldn't quantify. Yes, you're bumbling ape, I'm certain to a millionth of a meter and a billionth of a degree. Talford laughed then smashed the button on his device with a far more force than was needed. Close enough. The entanglement sensors all reset at the same time. Then every conventional sensor on the ship went blind for a fraction of a second. As I started to come back on, she saw the human's mechanically connected bridge had swung down and the engines were at full burn. The beautiful soup of radiation was pouring out of the front tube. The engines and the mechanical device were for recoil. She measured the mass of the ship again and saw it was missing over 2,000 kilograms of mass. There were trace amounts of U-235 mixed in with a cloud coming out of the ship's bow. They had detonated a fission bomb inside their own ship. Fuck that guy in particular, cackled Telford. The Ukraine ship was simply gone. Pieces of it were moving in respective fractions of the speed of light, and second collisions were causing havoc to the rest of the Ukraine fleet. Off by about 15 meters, Iron, Boomstick load up another one while we try and figure this out. This ridiculous ape wanted to do it again. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1051 The Impossible Species, written by Hitardo There is nothing quite like meeting your first human. That is something I don't say lightly. Even if you are just meeting a new species, unheard of on the planned galactic stage, I'd say that it would likely feel less significant or less memorable than meeting a human for the first time. I'm not the first creature to encounter one of these beings, and for that small mercy, I'm glad. But even knowing the tales of what I had to expect, the appearance was still jarring. Humans. Now, they don't move right. Hell, they don't look right either, but that's a different thing. Humans are on the bigger classes of all the sapient and sentient species out there, but they are far outclass even the largest creatures in sheer height. They're towering, slender giants with an almost enchantingly graceful locomotion that seems to defy common sense. They walk exclusively on two legs. Two legs! While they do have feet that cover surface in three dimensions, that means that most of their weight is naturally only mechanical stabilization in a single dimension. But yet, they walk, they stride, they run, and they perform such graceful acts on those two legs, almost comedically. Get them to walk in approximation of normal quadrupedal locomotion, and they're slow and clumsy like newborns, using knees and elbows. It's almost like a fairy tale in its silliness. Many 
species, in fact. Do call them fairies, or they. I know, though those are not the only names, nor are these the only reasons. But I digress. Alongside their unnatural locomotion, I got to witness firsthand their appearance. When I was introduced to two ambassadors of the human Imperium, that's their name for it, Imperium, a different spelling of Empire. Real creative. But again, the ambassadors, tall, graceful, and built like high-performance machines with their black metal exteriors over moderate muscle that I knew was far stronger than its size and appearance ought to indicate. Deceptive, contradicting, all surreal appearances seems to be a trait of their species. Their heads were dark chrome and slightly reflective. I had to remind myself that no, they were not nude. While many species lacked the concept of clothing, the humans, of course, appeared denuded, but both were wearing some kind of specialist bodysuit over their skin. It gave a very good highlight of their broad anatomy, actually, though I had no doubt that the fine details were likely hidden. The slimmer one, recognizably female, bent at the waist in a demonstration of casual mastery of balance and greeted me. Her name was Sarah. She and her companion, Davis, were to take me in, tour me through their culture, and answer my questions throughout, all for the cause of advancing social integration. Go figure. My first day with them proved immensely educational. The plan initially had been to take them to a lunch on a planet we were dwelling on. I suppose it was in part for me to gauge them before I committed myself to journey for so long with them. I knew that they were predators, as much as the idea of sapient predators is unpleasant to face. They were omnivorous, capable of consuming practically any living carbon-based material for biofuel, and that they actively hunted for food and for sport. The first contact rituals had been extensive, and the species had made no secret of their impressive streak of inventive violence their capacity, and their history of doing greater and greater acts of carnage and horrors on other species, other humans, and even their planet. I'd wanted to see their eating habits. I'd entirely forgotten that this species ventilated for reason to acquire oxygen. Yes, you read that right. They breathe oxygen. It's used to process high-energy reactions and such should their body. And while the idea did raise a laugh and seemingly reference a line of comedy, humans have no proven medical cases of spontaneous combustion. The humans had instead placed a starch-based dish into the processor and fed it into their suits. They were used to dwelling in them for extended periods of time. Turns out, they could handle food, atmosphere, fluid intake, waste expulsion, and a host of other inbuilt functions other species would have tied to innumerable devices and bits of technology that they carried around. They even contained a layer of nanomachines across their skin to avoid epithelial damage from the effects of wearing them for too long. I planned then to move straight to my ship. That did not happen. We ran into a crowd while leaving the eating hall. All the major interactions had, of course, taken place in the core worlds, Civilized, formal, and dignified meeting in civilized, formal, and dignified places. This, coupled with my job of being that of cultural integration and opening, had led me to start our journey of exploring cultures on Zanulu, a frontier world, 
distal from the rule's heavy dominions and dwelling in an area of well-known vibrant culture. Being more versed, I wanted to take them to places that weren't immediately on the tourist hotspots, so I took them here. Less tourist traps, more genuine culture. Retrospectively, perhaps an incomplete choice. Frontier world, lack of conventional structured laws, isolated community, and two of the towering, eldritch new species with their supernatural motions and feared reputation for pan-galactic headlines. Put two and two together. Ironically, the only one who ended up being at risk was me. The locals used a form of charged particle weaponry, superheated meshes of noble gas blasted at a hundred meters per second. Most creatures would have charged all put through them. Neither humans were faced. Davis told me after the fact that their suits were rated for exposure to hard vacuum and star radiation under high atmospheric and space-borne conditions. They were specifically armored to absorb high thermoradioactive energy doses and fast-moving microparticles alike. Made for an absolutely classic spectacle of what I am dubiously calling humanism now. As did Davis proceeding to engage them with his limbs alone. It makes some sense when you consider that it is an apex predator species with a self-confessed tendency for creative violence. Involved on a high-gravity, high-biospheric Type 3 Class 12 death world, trained in how to use its body in combat under multiple schools of training, several cultures, some even millennia, in constant development. It doesn't help much, though, when you witness it. I lack the words to describe it, and I had to administer myself sedatives after the fact. I don't really have much else to put into the report. Everything pertaining to information according to their cultures, rules, and laws are as abstract, random, and contradictory as they are, has been compiled in a separate report. We went around several other planets, systems, and peoples. They don and remove parts of their suits, sometimes appearing to wear armor, sometimes almost seeming to be small mecha on their own right. Sometimes they included a tribute to let them fly outside of transportation, in others to swim or to climb or to jump from orbit to ground. I'll never forget the final stage of our journey, though. We had traveled back to the humans' dominions. They had described their planet to me, its verdancy, its beauty, its splendor. It was like an amateur god had decided to cram every single planetary feature all onto one small but very dense ball of rock, and then had forced life to team and multiply and fight desperately to survive and find its own space to live. They'd destroyed it. In their middling years as a species, they developed and grown and conquered their world, turned then on themselves. The level of their industry, their production, and choked their skies and their oceans, driving species after species to extinction and damning everything on that rock. Their unwillingness to admit it had led to their world becoming a class two death world, lightless, toxic, irradiated, and caustic to life. Necessity had forced them to don suits, wearing them outside to protect themselves from their ruined atmosphere. The tale was bloody miserable, that their species had so prophetically caused their own downfall in their success and what that fall drove them to. But then they picked up again. They crafted ships to take them to space. Their new suits and a way of life had allowed them to produce and accept ships and living quarters with fractions of the cost and material expense. 
they'd spread to other worlds, the new generations paying mind to the faults of those in the past. Slowly, their new lives, bereft of the same freedoms and comforts, became more familiar, and thus more manageable. So their species did what they do best, survived, adapted, specialized, and fine-tuned until their space-dwelling Imperium, now a cohesive and unified collection of fractions willing to admit a single banner, had reached heights greater than the greatest of their forefathers. We were unable to travel to Earth, as they so creatively called it. While it by now had been recovered completely, being a planetary nature and historical reserve, undwelled upon by humans, the extreme gravity and local flora and fauna were too hazardous, even to Sarah at Davies, without their larger protective equipments. So, like I had done to them, they did it to me. We traveled to a frontier settlement off the tourist places, but one lacking in common human conventions. And yes, settlement, not planet. I told you they were a space-born race, and I did not lie. It was perhaps the single most surreal experience of them all. A city, vast and tall and towering and ornate in style humans call gothic. That, again, only humans could think up. Floating in the void between stars, exposed and open, lit by artificial lighting from nuclear engines on a scale most can't imagine. Apparently, convention is to strip the resources from the unimportant bodies of rock, preferably those distant to systems and too small to contain life, and use them to build new sections of city. When one wishes to make a new city, a portion simply buds off to go its own way and slowly build upon itself. Can you imagine it? A city like one you'd witnessed on a capital world, floating in space, with humans just going about their day, floating, flying, or walking as if nothing was amiss in this surreal realm. Except, somehow I'd been made the surreal one. Instead of growing more cumbersome in the void, Sarah and Davies had stripped everything from their suits, basically pair of function save a backpack to control their flight. They'd grown more nimble, more easy of motion somehow, than the typical that I'd grown used to, while I swaddled in the extravehicular activity suit, was awkward and frailing and cumbersome like a newborn. But I was the oddity. I was the strain of rationality, the appearance to convention or sanity in this fey realm of theirs. To them, this existence I find impossible, was normal, and my unfamiliarity, if not simple, my it was surreal and irrational. They took me on a tour around the place. They'd taken me here because it was one of the void cities that lacked an approximation of Earth's gravity thereby making it far more pleasant for me. They took me around attractions of their own culture in turn, explaining or simply allowing me to witness them. Parks, film, theater, play, art, life. It was truly as if I had stepped into a realm of the fairies for the sheer impossible insanities of their reality that they so casually, easily dealt with, were numerous. I bade farewell to them there, and I felt as if I left a little of my soul there in that otherworldly realm, in the void between stars. That void, where according to all laws of reality, no life should exist. And yet humans happily dwelled and flourished. 
An exemplar of humanism, I'd call it. An example of the outworldly, irrational, surreal, insane, or inconceivable being done, or simply existing. Almost perfectly contradicting the sane convention or common understanding of what is and isn't possible. Being done without mind or care. It seems to embody so much of the human species, though they, by nature, likely do not observe it. I think, for all their hazards and their risks and their horrors, I would like to return again to a human dominion, to witness in my own time the sheer extent of this humanism on display so casually. Though, not any time soon, I would much like a breather on witnessing such impossible events and creatures and reality. End of story.